You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. This is the Sawn Outdoors Podcast. As always, this podcast is brought to you by King's Camo. King's Camo focuses on performance, pattern, and price. You can check out all of the deals they have on kingscamo.com. Check out the different series, the the XKG, the Classic, and the Hunter series. Um, King's Camo makes affordable, durable camo to hit all price points and uh, really markets towards... From the, the average hunter, the weekend warrior, all the way up to guides and, and people who live on the mountain. So definitely go check it out. King's has been an awesome company to work with. Uh, they care about their products. They care about the feedback they get from the people who are using their stuff, testing it out, putting it through the ringer. And uh, we just can't thank them enough. We look forward to every weekend when we can throw on our XKG pants and uh, jackets if it's cool enough. I, I love wearing the jacket, but honestly, I get too warm, uh, so I need some cool, cooler weather to come back. But go check them out. You can use our discount code SON at checkout, and you'll save yourself 15% off your entire purchase, which is huge, guys. That's huge, and it really helps this podcast out. So thanks again for listening. Uh, use our code, save some money on some King's gear, and get ready for your fall hunt. Hey guys, how's it going? McCade here. Welcome to another episode of the Sawn Outdoors podcast. I can't believe it's already been two weeks uh, since we last dropped a podcast. Last or The last podcast, two weeks ago, we talked uh, with Karen Mikesell about uh, harvesting a great bull elk um, in the fall. And that was an awesome hunt. I got to be a part of it myself, along with their family and... Uh, it was a really fun experience. I had a, a lot of fun watching a family hunt together. And uh, she got to share a lot of that hunt with just Zach and her. So the two of them spent, you know, half a week together hunting elk. So um seems like each time we do a podcast, they just keep getting better and better. Um, our guests are freaking amazing people. They're hands down some of the cream of the crop, the salt of the earth, types of people. And this week is no different. This week I was able to sit down with Tanner Howard and Kip Fowler. Now Tanner Howard, um, we talk with him a little bit about his business called Lone Peak Leather Co. And Tanner, um, his dad is a a custom saddle maker um, as a hobby. And um, so Tanner kind of Got his talents and leather working skills, I guess you could say, from his dad. Um, and now Tanner is making products geared towards hunters um, out of leather. And probably the number one product that he makes uh, is called the Stockasin. Uh, it's a cross between something, you know, being able to stock in on an animal 
and moccasins. So stockasins. And the whole point of these moccasins or stockasins is uh, to replace the wool socks. Uh, if you whitetail people that are listening don't know what I'm talking about, go ask someone that hunts mule deer out in the West. Um, or I'll tell you right now. Um, a lot of guys that bow hunt in the West, um, they when they, they're trying to stock in on a mule deer, they'll slip their boots off and throw on a thick pair of wool socks to help protect their feet. But the whole idea is to be able to sneak in quietly and be able to feel uh, rocks and sticks and, and whatnot underneath their feet so they can move as quietly as possible and get as close as possible. And uh, these moccasins are no different. Uh, like the original Western hunters or Native American Indians, uh, these moccasins serve the exact same purpose uh, with a little bit better ability to protect your feet. And uh, Tanner is an exceptional craftsman um, his work is not only um, functional, uh, but it also has a great eye appeal. It looks very neat, and he has very done a very good job with his branding. Um, he brands all of his items with his logo, and they are just really cool. Um, we also, like I mentioned, talked with Kip Fowler, who is a machine of a bow hunter. Uh, Kip... Kip's bow hunting resume is not small and does not really lack. Uh, all you need to do is go jump on his uh, Instagram page to, to see that or Google him. Um, <clears throat> but Kip came across some of Tanner's uh, stockasins while browsing social media and just knew that he had to try them. And so in this podcast, we cover kind of Tanner's background, Kip's background, how Kip came to find out about stockasins. Um, we hear about him firsthand about how he's put them to the test and then his opinion on them. Um, we also go at, along for two hours. We, we were going to try to keep it to around an hour time frame. ended up chatting for two hours and it was lots of good material. We told lots of stories, learned lots of tips and tactics from Kip's many years of experience. Um, tell some great stories, some heartfelt stories, um, and just had a freaking ball. Uh, Tanner was gracious enough. Uh, I did not ask him to do this. He was gracious enough to extend a discount code to all of you who listen to this podcast. Um, it will be good for two weeks, and you'll be able to save 10% off any stockison orders that you make through his website. Uh, LonePeakLeather.com. You can find the notes um, to this on the podcast notes. Um, or hit us up, DM us, or you can DM him. Uh, the the code is Son Outdoors, all one word, all lowercase, S A H N O U T D O O R S. Again, that code is good for ten percent off any stockist in order, and it will be good for two weeks from today that you're listening to this podcast. Well, when it drops, this this podcast is going to be going live. On Tuesday, uh, June 5th, so that code will be good through the 19th of June. So, guys, bow hunts coming up. Make sure you go check out LonePeakLeather.com. Get yourself a pair of uh, these moccasins, these stockasins. I got fitted right after we recorded this podcast, and I cannot wait to get my hands on them. So, thanks again for listening, 
Enjoy. Basically, it looks like everyone else's, but his pattern, he's used, like, silhouettes of moose mm -hmm. to, like, make the digi yeah, camo. Yeah. Like, like, pajama pants? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Somebody will buy them. Somebody yeah, will yeah, buy them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I remember when I was a kid, I didn't have any camo clothes. I was, like, 12. Didn't have any camo clothes, but I had an old, I'd have a camo shirt, but I had some old pants that I'd over outgrown. Mm -hmm. So I remember I cut, I remember sitting there watching TV one night, and I cut big patches out of the pants because I didn't need them anymore. I did have camo pants that fit me. And I was sewing these big camo splotches onto my white or my black t-shirt to make my own I, I wish I still nice. had it. That's had awesome. these big camo patches. <laughs> my dad, he was actually really proud of me. He was like, that looks really good. That's but it was sweet. just... <laughs> That's way cool. Yeah. Did you sew them on? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Just I by just, hand or on the yeah, machine? by hand. I just got the sewing merit badge done. <laughs> so I thought I knew how to do it. It's Man, something, you, take a long something time. you could do in like two minutes. I was sitting there watching. We were it. watching the A-Team. I remember when I was watching the A-Team. And a uh, couple That's hours. Funny. couple you got hours a good memory. Sewing, yeah. Things like that. Things like yeah. that. I remember sitting in mud and playing with cars, you know? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. That was my first camo pattern that I should have saved. Yeah. And we built our blinds out of burlap sack and old really? suits that, yeah, we picked up at an Armley surplus store, and that's what we built our blind out of. Yeah. That's awesome. So that's expensive yeah. to do now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, we, I, it's funny, on the floor of the blind, we put carpet padding down. I mean, it was, I was in college. I had no money, so we were dumpster oh, yeah. diving to get I stuff. I still do stuff like that. <laughs> on the I'm still yeah. I'm in college. You're in college, so you know. I remember yeah. I was sitting there half asleep in the middle of the day. It was, uh, it was like noon. And Antelope, you know, they're mid-morning, like clockwork. And then from 10 a.m. till 4 p.m., there's nothing. I'm sitting there just dozing. And, and we dug these blinds in the ground. We dug them in the ground and built. So you're sitting there at ground level. Was it just sage or what was the uh, We put background with sage. Yeah, it was sage brushes out in these flats. Okay. And so I'm sitting there dozing. And I could tell something stepped in front of the blind because the light shifted. And I kind of woke up and looked, and here's this huge badger, like <laughs> foot and a half from me, looking at, at me and just scared, scared. I mean, just saw it, and I jumped Did back. You shoot it? And it jumped back and started growling like it was going to come in at me. And Holy cow. That was my first kill with... Hello? With Stockasons, well, hey. my only kill. Can you hear us? Yeah. yeah, can you hear me? Can. This is Ian on the line. Ian, this is Kip Fowler. How you doing? Doing well. How are you, Kip? Doing good. We can hear you loud and clear. Hey, Ian, this is Tanner. Hey, how are you? Doing great. Cool. How's nice. Colorado? I think I worked out. Oh, it's not bad. It's not too much different than Utah or than I don't know anybody over here. Yeah. <laughs> you just recently yeah. moved there? I've been here for about a year and a half or so. Okay. Yeah, just about that work and don't make many friends i did a bha thing though i i make friends through that that's good those, those are the right are friends awesome well we've just been sitting around telling hunting stories and bs and but right. uh let's let's get this thing started you good yeah all right well we'd like to welcome everyone out to another episode of the son outdoors podcast 
sitting here on a, what is today, Wednesday afternoon. Got Tanner Howard, mm-hmm. right, and yep. Kip Fowler. We're sitting here in Tanner's leatherworking shop. So yes, sir. We wanted to get these guys on a podcast. Um, if any of you follow Tanner on uh, on Instagram, he's got a page called Lone Peak Leather Co. And uh, he's got this really awesome product he's been making. Um, for how long have you been doing um, the moccasins? I've been making them for, uh, I guess, the first pair I made was about four years ago. But as far as selling them, the last two years. Awesome. Yep. Yeah, he he makes these really cool moccasins. Um, he calls them the stockasins, and they're a, a leather um, re- double reinforced, right on the yes, the sir. bottom. Um, just a leather stocking shoe. Um, the intention, I believe, is to stock in on on animals when you're out hunting, or your neighbor, you know, <laughs> whichever you know, <laughs> way you want to swing that. Don't discriminate. <laughs> So, tell, Tanner, tell me a little bit about yourself. How did you get started in this? What's your background? All right, I guess starting from the beginning. I'm originally from South Dakota, Rapid City. Um, best kept secret of the West right there. Yeah. I guess not anymore. But um, I've been living in Utah most of my life. Um, and my as far as uh, leather goes, I remember growing up uh, in South Dakota, we had a little crawl space kind of in our garage that was big enough to stand up in. My dad had his leather shop down in there. He's a custom saddle maker on the side. And um, so I had always been around, you know, leather and seen him work on stuff. And maybe when I got too annoying, he'd throw me a piece of leather and some scissors <laughs> or some stamps or something. and Make something. You know, get me out of his hair. But um, it wasn't until about five years ago I started dabbling a little bit. And um, started to realize I liked it a little bit. And um, I remember it was my senior year of high school. I was just getting into bow hunting. Um, I had grew up rifle hunting, but really wanted to get into bow hunting. And that was my first season. And I remember watching on TV, watching guys kick their shoes off to get closer to, to a deer. They got the big wool socks. Yeah, throwing X Pro yeah. wool socks. And so I didn't know what I was doing, but I was close to a deer. I was like, well, I'm going to take my shoes off because that's cool, right? <laughs> So I do, and sure enough, I step on a cactus, and this cactus oh. spine shoots up into my foot. And uh, I come hobbling back in the door, and my dad's like, what'd you do? I told him what happened. He's like, well, why don't you go out there in the shop and make yourself a pair of moccasins? An idea I hadn't really, I hadn't thought about. So I did, made a crude pair of, I guess, what are now stockasins. And um, it just kind of snowballed into, you know, friends seeing them and wanting them. Yeah. And the friends of friends and whatnot, and then I decided, wow, this is actually could be a good idea. And so I, uh, that's kind of what I do now. I go to school um, full time as well, but um, every chance I get, <clears throat> I'm out here filling orders for my clients and trying to uh, improve my product a little bit. So you said you started selling them about two years ago. Yeah, is that correct. Yep. So how is the has the business grown in that two years? It's, uh, it's, it's stabilized a lot more. I mean, just getting, having more awareness, people, mm-hmm. you know, seeing them. Well, that's uh, a huge thing for any product, right? Is yeah, getting exactly. it in front of people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Social media has been huge for that. Um, guys like Kip have been huge, huge for that as well. You know, ha- just um, <coughs> word of mouth has been really big. So, yeah, it definitely has grown. Um, and looking to keep, continue growing it. Uh, right now, it's, it's all I do for work, and it's, it's been great. Um, I love it to be able to do something that I have passion for. Yeah. 
that a lot of people see as unique and uh, that I can kind of put my personality into, but also have time to go hunting on the side. Yeah, so for sure. Make my own schedule. Well, it's way cool that you're you're making a product that you actually get to use, put to use in your hobby, you know, something exactly, you love to do. Yeah. So you're combining two loves, and I think mm-hmm. that's incredible. Yep. I'm going to school for manufacturing engineering, which is right up this alley. I mean, yeah. a little bit larger scale than working in your shop on your own, but yeah. um, to be able to have something I can directly apply my degree to or, you know, apply in my degree both ways is exciting, and, you know, it's cool. Yeah, that's awesome. And then uh, Kip... Tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, so my name is Kip Fowler, and I grew up down in southern Utah in St. George, the St. George area. My dad was in education down there, so I grew up. Um, my dad always had me out hunting and hiking and fishing and camping, so I grew up with my uh, a bow from the time I can remember. So I've had this love of bow hunting since I was just even two, three, four years old. We have pictures of us with bows and arrows, so... I never realized what a big part of my life it was till I got a little older and, um, yeah. you know, we get busy in high school with sports and school and all of these other things, but the platform that I based everything on that I realized later was hunting and, and everything that goes with it. So now I live here in uh, kind of central northern Utah and my wife and I have seven kids and we're busy and... Seven kids. Try, trying to manage that and in, in our, yeah, our passion of hunting. So when you ask me about me, that's usually <laughs> what I probably should say first is, is I have these, <laughs> a wonderful wife and seven kids and luckily my family life and, and hunting have kind of been able to blend and so I've been able to give my kids time in the outdoors with me and they've loved it and they have differing degrees of it but yeah, yeah. so that's... I live up here and... Um, that's pretty much sums me up. But I, obviously, we're here because because we all love hunting and bow hunting, and right. that's where my uh, outside of my family and and religion, my passion is hunting and bow hunting. So that's the common thread that pulled Tanner and I together. Was we'll probably get into this later, but I saw somebody post something up about stockasins, these moccasins you can wear bow hunting, and yeah. it hit me right away. What a common sense. What a common sense idea for bow hunting. I had a funny story. I was I had a big deer here on the Wasatch that I. Wanted to kill. He went over two. He went two fifteen. He was a big deer. I ended up taking that year, but I ended up duct taping my feet the night before because I knew to kill this buck, I would have to scale a rocky spine. Uh-huh. And so I'm laying in my tent the night before the hunt on this little bivy camp that I had, and I had brought a, a roll of duct tape to camp, and I sat and taped my feet the night before, thinking that if this buck went low. I was going to have to run down this rocky spine. So I did it, and I killed this buck. But I remember this funny story about duct tape. So Tanner Stockasins are the upgraded version <laughs> yeah. that bow hunters can use for, but they make Organic this. Organic duct yeah. tape. So there's, it, 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 it's such a fun and good product, and that's how I met Tanner was I reached out to him last year and just said, hey, I'm interested, and had a chance to use Stockasins last year during the bow hunt. And it was such a no-brainer for me how easy and practical they were to use and it solved mm-hmm. so many problems it solved so many problems that every time i wanted to stock a mule deer i'd take my boots off and i'd actually put on a second pair of socks and yeah by the time i got back to my backpack a couple hours later my socks were always ruined always Trashed, i ruined yeah. them almost every time and some of these hunting socks are 20 30 bucks a pop and yeah. i just got sick of it and but i didn't know the other option and so Stockison solves a lot of those problems and it's a neat product so that's how tanner and i met as i used them last year and he and i started i just said man you got a good thing going here um, most guys that uh, bow hunt mule deer the way we do or guys that want to, this is a product every, I, I believe it's a product every bow hunter should have in their backpack. Just, I think everybody that bow hunts in Western style should have a pair of these stockasins in their backpack. And if you don't, if you don't use them, it's okay. Yeah. But man, I've been in too many situations where if I had them, it sure would have helped. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. 
No, that's that's awesome. Uh, they they are something that really grabs your eye when you first see them. You're like, holy crap, those look awesome. Like they're they're more than just like a moccasin. Yeah. So I remember hunting with my uncle in Idaho. He was bow hunting elk, and I'm just tagging along for the ride. You know, there's two of us riding doubles on his motorcycle. I'm holding his bow while he <laughs> drives, and we're cruising down the the trail, and we get off and. He pulls out these just crude moccasins, you know, just basically a piece of leather. I, they, I don't even know if they had strings on them for laces or anything, you know. And he, I'm like, why do you have moccasins? Like, don't only Indians use those? <laughs> He's like, yeah, we're yeah. hunting. <laughs> and I was and like, that's what we're doing. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I, it is interesting that you haven't seen any moccasins, like, really be a prevalent part of any backpacking yeah. or, you know, bow hunting yeah. um, person's arsenal it, it it seems like the go-to was thick pair of wool socks so i'll throw another pair of wool socks in my back yeah. yeah and this it, this the stockasins are fun we've talked about tanner and i have because they have the traditional aspect of bow hunting where we all know the native americans and the indians were the forefathers of bow hunting here in north america and when you see when you see moccasins that's what you think of right native yeah. americans and so there's a lot of guys in bow hunting that are traditionalists that that will appeal to them uh-huh. and then you have this huge wave of more modern bow hunters that are using the compound bows and all the more modern gear that you can this product stockasins appeal to them i mean it applies to both so there's this traditional component of history when you're putting on your stockasins yeah and yet there's this very practical this isn't just for guys with the longbow and recurve right these are for your you know guys like me that are out this with, is a tactical it is piece and, it's, of gear. and it's such a simple no-brainer for me that i i just think yeah. when i reached out to tanner i said i can't believe nobody is making a product like this large scale because this makes so much sense so it's fun it's fun to see tanner's business take off and it's fun for me to talk about it because i take very serious the gear that i have in my backpack when i'm bow hunting everything that i have in my backpack is strategic i don't take anything that i won't won't need a lot of guys listening to this podcast want to go as light as they can backcountry hunting Mm -hmm. and this is some stockasins are now something i'll never go bow hunting without them um, so anyway, it's, it's a fun conversation to have because it's a very uh, necessary, practical application to what we love to do, which is bow hunt. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's huge coming from someone with your resume of, of bow hunting. Um, I mean, all you have to do is take one look at your Instagram and you see, you know, the caliber of mule deer you're, you're killing consistently. And so it's, it's listening to what, what you consider as crucial pieces of gear i think is huge you know we can all learn yeah and i've obviously got book. plenty to learn so thank you but i i look back and um i i look back at the the deer i've taken and most of them have been spot and stock situations and that's kind of the challenge of a lot of this high country mule deer hunting is the draw of spot and stock and some of this type type of terrain and i've been very fortunate to have some success but I, now i'm looking forward to the goals i have and the things i want to accomplish and i wish i would have had Stockasins on my feet years ago. <laughs> I don't know that the outcome ago. would have been different, but my feet would be in a lot better shape now that I'm in in my 40s now. But yeah, it's a it's a product that I look back and I think of so, I can think of so many scenarios where they would have helped. In fact, this year the buck I ended up taking this year, I had them on and it was the first time I'd used them. I didn't use stockasins till you know this last hunt, 2017, and I used them. We had a lot of action on the bow hunt here. Um, so normally, if I get one or two stocks in on an animal in the early season, I consider that successful. And I had a stock almost every day. that's all he needs. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. No, because <laughs> these opportunities are few and far between. But I had I slipped into my stockasins. I think I told you ten or five different stocks, yeah. and they performed so well. They it just made so much sense. They were so easy. You know, it's interesting when you. There's some, there's some other products out there, but when you take your boots off, one of the things you want to be able to do is feel the ground with your feet. So that's why you wear right. socks. The socks are soft. 
soft enough that you can touch the ground and feel the ground. You can feel rocks below you. You can feel branches underneath you. But it, you don't lose that sense of feel that you have when you have a pair of socks on. And I always worried about wearing boots still because not only would they be a little more noisy, but you can't feel the ground as you go. At all. And stockasins, <laughs> that, that was one thing that I noticed right away when I was trying them out before the hunt is I can feel the ground, which is what I want. And the deer I ended up killing, I had to slip in on and, um, in some really rough terrain. It was up an avalanche chute, and they were so quiet, and I could feel the way, as, feel myself go as I went. And it just validated everything that I was hoping to get out of them. It was, it was so practical, um, and it made so much more sense that in the future I look forward to using them. But I look back and think, man, they would have been nice to have on some of these uh, backpacking, high country type hunts we've been on. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, Talk a little bit about uh, your experiences. I know you've you've hunted whitetails yeah. quite a bit. You've gotten into that. Um, talk about your experiences um, as far as how maybe they compare to to hunting mule deer out here in the West and the differences in, in you know, hunting it's, it's styles. So I never thought I would enjoy whitetail ever. I just, it never even appealed to me. I never thought of it because I grew up in, in a time in my life where I had one hunt a year. I hunted the Utah bow hunt and yeah. rifle, and that was it. So I didn't start hunting whitetail until 10 years ago, and I can't believe how much I've enjoyed it. And it's so totally different. Yeah. It is a, you know, uh, we go out, and when we hunt whitetail, we're hunting 25 feet up in these stands, and we sit all day. Um, just when you're hunting in the rut, when you're hunting November, when bucks are cruising looking for does, you just never know where or when they're going to come by. So we sit all day, and it's a totally different mindset than hunting mule deer, where you have to just sit and let the action come to you. The guy we went out and started hunting whitetail with, a really dear friend that's passed away now, Daryl, um, his email address was playingthewind at AOL.com. He just, everything was about playing the wind. So we'd go out to hunt, and we'd sit there every night, and Daryl would look at these uh, Google Earth images of all the tree stands. He had like 130 tree stands, and he would look at the wind, wow. and, and he would strategically put us where the wind was going to be best, and then we would sit all day. And it was, you know, we hunt so hard out here in the West that it was kind of nice to take a week off and oh, just yeah. go sit in a tree stand. <laughs> it oh, was kind of nice. It, bet, just, yeah. it was just nice. But it's a mental grind out there where you're sitting there all day, every day. The deer I killed two years ago, my best white tail to date, was on day the evening of day six. All day sits, you know, from 6 a.m. till... 5.30 at night, and it's just a Jeez. mental, just a grind, you know, you're just grinding, trying to stay with it, and that's just a different approach than out here when we hunt mule deer, you're out more trying to create your action, you're more trying to um, bring opportunities your way, where whitetail hunting, you're just sitting there hoping your scent's covered up, you're high enough yeah. in the tree, they won't smell you, and then crossing your fingers that something walks your way. Right. It's, so it's, a, it's, it's the same in that you have this anticipation of seeing a great animal, and um, there's a lot that builds up to it, but very different in the approach. Right. Real quick, just talking about whitetail hunting. I mean, because I'm not very uh, experienced in it. I've, I've hunted them a little bit um, just on some public land. It was really hard to find, like I was telling you yeah. earlier, on the border of Mexico in Texas. And uh, there we would just go nuzzle up underneath of a tree and hope something came by. But talking to some whitetail guys, um, they tell me just how smart some of these, these bucks are when you're up in a tree stand 20, 30 feet up there, and they'll come in and they'll just look up and, you know, walk through with their heads up. Yeah, they're yeah. so aware, and we're, it's so much of it's with the wind, too. We, I've got even more into that now where we're using ozonics to cover our sand up. Um, but so much of what the whitetail guys now that we're hunting with the Midwest guys that are hanging their stands high, they want to get them as high as they can to keep them out of the thermals. Mm -hmm. And so much of it is just the scent. These bucks come in, and especially when they're cruising, they're cruising areas maybe they don't normally uh, pattern uh, or, or go through, but they're, they're checking scent scrapes. They're checking, they're, but it's all about trying to get, a, trying to get above the scent. 
Um, but they are the the white tailer. It, it's interesting in the rut they can do stupid things, but man, they're wary. And but you know, so are mule deer. And and I think yeah. any, especially white tail, when you're above their line of sight and you're when you're on the ground, man, they just seem so much more. Um, they have such more of an ability to smell you and see you. And you know, and Tanner was just really? telling us earlier when he's grown up and hunted whitetail, he's hunting them off the ground because they don't have trees. Yeah, there's no trees. Yeah, so it's a totally different scenario. <laughs> He'd be the one to ask um, that question because the guys I bow hunt uh, whiteys with, man, we're literally, we're 25, 30 feet up um, and hoping we're above the thermals and the wind changes where Tanner's killed them on the ground. I, as you were talking, it just made me think back to growing up in South Dakota. I grew up hunting both whitetail and mule deer because we have about a 50-50 mix where we hunt out there. In the same country. Yeah. Same terrain. Yep. And uh, depending on the tag you have, archery tag, you can shoot either. Um, uh, some of the rifle tags, usually the mule deer is a little bit harder to, to draw. But um, I remember since my dad has always had this huge passion for whitetails, I remember although we had both whitetail and mule deer, we were always focused on hunting whitetail. And I think the reason of that is because to him, to my dad, it's always, he's always um, been really interested in, in kind of that wariness of whitetails. And seeing them both in the same habitat in the same country, it's really interesting to be able to contrast not only the hunting styles, but to actually realize that they're very different animals. And um, they're both weary, both very wary animals, but in different ways. You know, whitetail, they just tend to have another sense that mule there may not have because being so isolated from everything else, they may not need it. But whitetail... Growing, you know, living on farms and around human activity, they just seem to always know what's going on. Hmm. And uh, since we don't hunt them in trees, we, um, we just sit on the ground and ground blinds and stuff. But it's always been interesting to notice the difference in the, in the two species. And I know that plays into the, to the ways we hunt them. Um, but I think that's, it, it's cool. I think it, everybody that, that bow hunts or hunts in general should try to hunt both species. It doesn't matter where you live try to go get that experience because it'll teach you a lot about the species you have been hunting for a long time. Just kind of getting that contrast. Yeah. That's awesome that you have that, that experience. I didn't realize, you know, I, I've never been to South Dakota and not, now I'm going to have to go check yeah. it out. That sounds yeah, like it'll open right a whole place. new world up for you. When I first went out, I, I kind of went out thinking, Oh, it'll be fun. It's a new trip. And I, I absolutely love it. I never thought I would. And I don't know that anything will ever replace mule deer. For me, that's always the yeah. ultimate. But that whitetail hunting is so fun. It'll <laughs> it'll open up I've a can of worms. It will. It'll open up a <laughs> it, can of worms for you. I yeah. like what you said, Kev. How it's a, it's a time to it's like a a resting hunt. Yeah. Compared to what we're used to out here, I I look forward to that South Dakota hunt so much every year to be able to just go out and just hang out with yep. hang out with the guys, you know, feel that camaraderie and be able to relax a little bit rather than. Yeah. Hike five, six, ten miles a day. Right. One after mule deer. It's a very different experience, but mentally exhausting yeah. more than physically exhausting. So let's talk about like how each of you prepare for your mule deer hunts. I mean, because I think the preparation for mule deer versus whitetail is totally different, and the hunting styles also. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a physically demanding activity. Yeah. I mean, from day one, it's nothing around here in Utah is flat. No. <laughs> it's all straight up and down. And so, like, how, how do you guys um, get ready for your hunts? I mean, when, when do you really start preparing for your hunts in scouting season? Well, I, I mean, first off, I don't have as much, much experience hunting mule deer as, as Kip does, obviously, being younger and having got into bow hunting later. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but uh, in the years that I do have, I've taken it maybe more seriously than I should and, you know, got pretty tore up about the times I wasn't successful. But um, it is true, especially here in Utah on the Wasatch Front, it's extremely steep. Um, and being in physical shape, in good physical shape, is step one, obviously. But uh, I don't look at it as much of like, oh, wow, I got two months left, got to get in shape. I think it's a mindset you kind of got to have throughout the year. I don't know how you think about it, Kip, but I think obviously that's step one. And if you want to enjoy your hunt, mm-hmm. I think you got to be able to be able to deal with the physical side of things. Otherwise, you're not going to enjoy it. But. Yeah, we um, it you know, and it's fun because most of us now that are probably a lot of guys listening to this podcast have found opportunities to hunt all year, mm-hmm. you know. So there's kind of motivation to try to stay in shape or get in shape, and it's been interesting to see the contrast in bow hunting where there's this athletic type of um, movement going on with bow hunting now, backcountry hunting, wilderness athlete, whatever it is, where guys are more aware of being fit and being in shape to bow hunt, and I think it's a really good thing because. Now you can do hunts year-round. You can go hunt coos deer in January. You can go hunt bears and turkeys in March and April. You can hunt bears in June. You can hunt uh, whatever you want to hunt. You can find a time and place for it. And so that's my mentality with bow hunting has always been it's year-round. And it's interesting how that's changed as I've gotten older. Honestly, you can't get away with much the older you get. And so Mm -hmm. that is my motivation. So I'm at the gym every day, and I'm hiking a couple times a week just to stay in shape so I can hunt. So that part of it, everybody's got to find their balance and their motivation, but it is year-round. I mean, right. it's it's this year-round process. I know exactly what I weigh. I know what I'm eating every day. I know what I shouldn't eat, and when I do, I know I'm going to pay for it. <laughs> but usually we can tell when we really start hiking a lot, and we usually don't start hiking a lot till June or July scouting. And um, and you can tell in August, we, we call it getting our hiking legs. You can tell when your oh, legs yeah. or when you can go out and put 30 or 40 pounds in your pack and not kill yourself Right. Going out for, and that's you know you can tell when you get into a little groove there, and so we're mm-hmm. I, I'm very conscientious of when August the third week of August rolls around. I want to be primed and ready to go, and so much of it is what we're eating um, and drinking. You know, soda's big, oh, but yeah. I, it's been good to see this big movement in bow hunting. Of you know, if you want to really make this a passion for yourself, you know, there's the aspect of getting to know your your bow and shooting your bow well. And then there's this whole other aspect of you need to be healthy if you want to come hunt this type of train. You know, you don't have to if you're back east and you're hunting whitetail. Um, you don't have to be in great shape to climb a tree stand. <laughs> um, I've, I've, uh, we've had some funny stories out there with guys that have come and tried to, to bow hunt out here in the west. And uh, it can turn out really bad if they're not ready for it. I, have, <laughs> yeah. I had some buddies come out from Mississippi that hunted out here uh, years ago. And the elevation just killed them. Right. You know, the elevation, and they were young. Yeah. We were all, elevation killed them. But it's that year-round mentality of staying in shape, um, trying to stay up with my bow. And then, man, when August rolls around, it is. It's a, The fun part is when scouting starts for us in June, July, I call it the grind. It's this, this summer grind. But it's, I've learned to love that more. The early morning pack-ins or to scout, the process. The older I get, the more I really enjoy that process. And I used to just try to find the one deer, the one buck I wanted to focus on, and the one mm-hmm. deer that I would try to keep track of all summer. And it kind of sucks in June when you find that buck and you think, oh, I got to keep track of this thing all summer now. If I'm hiked in five miles and you find that deer, now Mm -hmm. you start to worry thinking, oh, I got to try to keep an eye on this. And I've just learned to enjoy that more now, kind of take what the mountain gives you. Mm -hmm. And Matt and I, my my friend Matt Bateman that I hunt with, we say that all the time. Let's see what the mountain's going to give us today and whether or not we want to take it. And the deer I killed last year is a prime example of that. He was, you know, like a mid-160s type buck. Um, I didn't have him targeted all summer at all. But when I was in the moment and found him, I thought, okay, this is what the mountain's given me this morning, and I, I'm alone, and it's a challenging stock. I want to try this. I want to, and so my mentality's changed a little bit that way, where 
you know, maybe the situation as it unfolds dictates whether or not I really go after something. I just enjoy it more now. As far as getting back to when do we get ready, I think it, it could differ. It should differ while, like a lot depending on if you live in a place where there are mule deer or if you're from back east and you have a mule deer hunt planned. Mm-hmm. If you live where there are mule deer, you should be thinking about it year-round. You should have oh, yeah. your bow set up <laughs> year-round. It shouldn't be a thing where you're pressed in the last couple of weeks to get ready for it. Yeah. Now, that's not a realistic approach for somebody that is going on maybe their first mule deer hunt. Um, and so you may want to set more of a time frame, you know, two months out, I want to have this ready. Because there's the whole aspect of getting into maybe backpacking for the first time as well, depending on the style of hunt you have planned. That's a whole nother aspect that people that live around me there should already have that dialed in. That should be an ongoing process of getting that gear dialed in, knowing what to carry, knowing how to cut weight. But someone that is going into it maybe their first time, that's something that, you know, they should definitely set up a time frame in order to be prepared for it. Because if they don't, like you were mentioning, it can turn into a bad experience. Yeah, we had a friend of ours, another friend, come out um, about eight years ago, nine years ago, and hunted out here for the first time hunting in the West. And he had, he, but he was very conscientious, to your point, Tanner, was calling us months in advance, what should I be doing? He, he was from Illinois, and so he needed to know, here's my three-month process to get ready, getting in shape, hiking, walking. And, and, and he, actually, I can't believe where we got him and how long he lasted. Um, he did great, but it was that that cycle for him of getting ready for the hunt. And, and for him, it was a big thing. It was a challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, and he did really well. He, in fact, he came out in September, then came back and hunted in November during the late hunt and was just so committed to hunt hard every day. So even though he wasn't in the environment that we live in, um, he had committed to it. So if, if there's guys on listening to the podcast that are thinking about more of a high country a, diff, a more difficult um, hunt opportunity for them with a bow, then yeah, that has to be part of your of your preparedness for it. And it can, obviously that's going to bleed into other good things for you. You know, if you're improving your health and your stamina and your strength and losing some weight or whatever, you know, that bleeds into everything else other than just bow hunting. And it's a good thing. That's, that's mm-hmm. kind of what I was referring to earlier when I said that's a good thing, that this athleticism and training as part of bow hunting is a good thing because it bleeds into everything other than just bow hunting too. Yeah, yeah. that's for sure. I'm and not the host of the show, but I got a, no, I got a question for you're Kip. You're good. Yeah. <laughs> if you remember, what was his impression on hunting, you know, mule deer in the high country? It was over. It, it was overwhelming to him. So he was a whitetail guy. Again, this was Daryl Bozarth. Is um, AOL, playing the wind at AOL.com. He was a whitetail guy, but a very accomplished bow hunter. And he wanted to come out and hunt the West. Wanted to come out and hunt the West. And his experience out here, he was overwhelmed. I mean, he took so many selfies at the time they didn't even have cell phones of really selfies but he was taking all these pictures of him and this incredible terrain that he had never experienced before and he was so proud that we would take him somewhere and he could get there and then we'd take him somewhere else and he could get there and he was sending pictures home to his dad and his buddies look at me look at me you know there's there such an aspect of pride for him that was Sense funny of accomplishment yeah, yeah. It, it, it was fun because he was able to sit and watch me he was with matt one morning and watched me harvest a deer they a deer was coming my way and i set up in a path and they got to sit and watch me shoot it from like 12 yards so we had to load heavy to hike out and it was funny because daryl locked up so we're matt and i are going down this ridge line that i didn't even think twice about you know we're just bebopping down the ridge and i got i'm loaded heavy because i got the deer in my gear and matt's loaded heavy and daryl was behind us and then daryl we just kind of stopped and looked and daryl was just locked up and he was just shaking his head like i'm i I can't do this the terrain to him was so in his opinion 
dangerous. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we had to go back and take his pack off and walk him down to where he felt comfortable. But he had this really strong sense of um, accomplishment, and and he was literally just overwhelmed by the terrain we hunt out here in the West versus what he grew up hunting, you know, back east. I think yeah. that's a big difference between what drives whitetail hunters versus mule deer hunters. Obviously, there's exceptions, so I don't want to generalize too much. But in my experience, I look forward to my whitetail hunts, or I guess in, in South Dakota's situation where I hunt, you know, the mixed hunt of mule deer and whitetail, but definitely flatter terrain. I look forward to spending time with people and in that aspect of hunting versus here, a lot of the times, a lot of guys out here, at least backcountry hunting, you often hunt alone. I mean, there's a lot of times when you're alone or with, you're with a friend. But, but you're seeking oh, the solitude. Yeah, and even if you're with a friend, you, you may not talk that much, yeah. you know, compared to, you know, a different situation. So I think that sense of accomplishment is, is a big drive yeah. for guys here. And, and uh, that may contrast a little bit with, um, with whitetail hunters. All there's obviously ex- exceptions and, and right. whatnot, but that's just a thought I had about that. No, that's a great point. So your scouting season starts June, mid-June? You yeah, say? usually, you know, uh, yeah, and a lot of it comes into the, the terrain and weather, too. But, yeah, mm-hmm. a lot of times if we try to scout too early, we'll find a deer early June or mid-June, and they're gone. They've moved on by mm-hmm. July, August. So more what we do in May, June, and even early July, we try hiking different drainages, different trails, just to familiarize ourselves with different areas. Um, and then come probably the first part of July, we really start to pinpoint down a few bucks that we want to hunt. So yeah, we start, and a lot of it though is just familiarizing ourselves with new terrain so that by the time the hunts roll around, uh, we have different drainages that we're familiar with. And that's probably as important as anything is knowing where you're going, uh, knowing the terrain and knowing how to get in and out. We've had situations where we've killed animals in one drainage (laughs) and we got to take them out of different drainage. And then we got to call somebody to come help us and meet us down here. But knowing how you can navigate that comes into the scouting part of it as well right um here locally you know here if you find a big deer chances are other guys have seen it too and so mm-hmm. the oh, area sure. yeah, and, and that's <laughs> the challenge of public land bow hunting and that's it is what it is and that's why when guys harvest a good animal on public land with their bow and then you ask add the aspect of the high country in i think it's a great because oh, yeah. usually now they're not uh it's not one guy chasing one deer it's 20 guys and when it happens it's pretty mm-hmm. cool but that kind of dictates how we scout and where we scout we try to get places that even if guys have found the deer that they can't hunt it nonstop. Maybe they can go in for a day or two and, and that comes into play with how we hunt as well. We start to think, you know, a lot of the animals we've harvested have been week three, four, five, um, where we know a lot of guys will hit it hard for a day or two and they're done, you know, Mm -hmm. and that's, that's reality. Guys get geeked up in the summer and they get excited and they get all the neat gear and they, they're in shape and they're anxious. And then you get up there and realize after a couple days of hunting, it can kick your butt. Oh yeah. And you know, they go home and and that's where we're kind of hoping that we can jump back in and have an advantage over. We try, we try. But like I said, a lot of guys are more hardcore and it's a good thing. It's just, it's getting that way. Like we were just talking about people are kind of seeing the, the effort they're putting in, in the off season. Yeah. I say off season lightly because, yeah. you know, it should be a year-round thing like we said. But, um, yeah, they're getting into it where they can last longer. Um, I had a limited entry archery elk tag here in Utah two years ago, and uh, I I worked my tail off that year. You know, I went out and hiked. It was on the Manti unit, and if you've ever spent time on that, you know that it's steep, and all the roads over there are on top. Mm-hmm. So when you hike in, yeah, you got a nice easy walk in, but your pack out is you're terrible. Climbing, yeah. Brutal. 
And uh, I spent 15 days total of that hunt, not, you know, in a row or anything. I hunted mm-hmm. the weekends until the ruts started uh, kind of kicking off, and then I hit it for a week and a half. And I was burnt out yeah. by that the <laughs> middle of the, that week that I was up there, and, you know, thinking I've got a whole week. I'm just going to kill it. And about Wednesday, I was done. I was, done. I was checking out mentally, and that was such a hard thing for me to find my, and refocus my mind. I ended up driving down off the mountain. I went and did a load of laundry, had a burger in town, <laughs> and then I went and shot doves with some friends. Yeah. And then I was like, all right, it's midnight. I'm heading back up the mountain. Well, so here's what's funny. You say something funny, but this is, this is such a big part of it. But when we, so we do a lot of backpacking, right? And, uh, you know, backpack hunts, it, it, it's not often that you go more than four or five days, really. I mean, sometimes you go on these week-long hunts, but... Even then, there, you said you went down and you got a burger, and yeah. I just think you know what—it's—it's it's a part that's kind of overlooked, but the food component of hunting and fatigue <sighs> is such a big part of. I, we all know guys that guys now are trying to go lighter, stay longer, mm-hmm. and usually where they're sacrificing where they shouldn't is their food, and they're trying to see. I want to take the most, the littlest amount of food possible. I'm going to get these mountain house meals or these dehydrated meals that are loaded up with sodium right. and that's all I'm going to eat and after day two you're like choking the stuff down and you start thinking about food I've yeah. seen guys pull off the mountain because they just want to go get a burger yeah. what happened to you maybe exactly. but, but so that's this part of backcountry hunting that I have come to realize more and more in the last few years is if I'm going to go on a hunt that I think could be pretty extensive and physically demanding you need to know what kind of food do you want to take what will appeal to you up there you don't want to eat the same kind you want to get variety right what kind of cow so we were just Matt and I were in Colorado a couple years ago just pounding food and we took we got pictures of this food we took in and it looked insane we went in early a month before the hunt and took in just a variety of all these different kinds of food and stashed it and I will tell you what during the hunt when we were nonstop hunting all day just go 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 if you force yourself to eat and you want to eat because you have a variety and different types of foods it's amazing how that will help it's your a huge it's up. a huge part of hunting and if you don't like like if you don't like I'm going down to Arizona tomorrow to hunt bears with my sons and I'm asking my son food questions because I've been with him when he hits his food wall on the mountain and he's looking <laughs> at what I have in my pack and he wants to go back to the truck. So that's kind of a funny but a very practical point oh, yeah. to, to be aware of going into your hunts is, dude, what kind of food do you want to eat? You have to have a variety. You have to get food that you're going to like and enough of it or it'll cause burnout. And, yeah. that's, and that can get you off the mountain early and that's very unfortunate. Yeah. You, you guys did a podcast with Mark Smith, right? Yes. Yeah. Not too long ago. I don't know if he mentioned it in the podcast, but I got to tell a story before we move past. This is too funny. So it was uh, two years ago. We were up on the mountain, and the spot that we had been um, that we had been scouting, me and my brother and uh, my buddy Towson Jenkins, we uh, it just happened to be 150 yards from Mark Smith's camp. So we ended up meeting him on the on the hill, and. Uh, Originally, I went up with my brother, and we stashed some food and whatnot, but my brother could only stay a couple days. So then I called my friend Towson Jenkins, and he came up, and he, he's a skinny, tall military yeah. kid. <laughs> and I remember him coming up um, with me because I hiked down to meet him. We hiked back up. He had an 80-pound pack. And I was like, what do you have in there? He's like, oh, man, I got cans of chili. I got, you know, clam chowder. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And so <laughs> wow. we get, sure enough, he just pours out all this food. And I remember at first thinking, this is ridiculous, dude. We're supposed to be light. What are you doing? But at the end of the five days, it was so worth it. And I say Mark might have mentioned it because I remember one night we invited Mark over 
to have some dinner at camp, and he was kind of like, what? Invite me to have dinner up you, in the you mountains. You pulled out your Dutch so we, oven. So we pull out <laughs> clam <laughs> chowder. So oh my we pull out these cans of clam chowder. I mean, cans. <laughs> That's insane. And But I remember those nights. I mean, I had been up there for for the whole week, and I was that was such a big pick-me-up to have that food. And that's one thing I guess I would say for someone that hasn't had this experience of backcountry hunting, don't skimp on food. Yeah. Not only because you need it, but because you want it and because it just helps you mentally so oh, much. Oh, for sure. But like uh, I mean, don't variety. carry 80 yeah. pounds of, of canned food, maybe. <laughs> you got to pack but, the cans uh, out, remember. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's this balance, though, where you can, you know, there's a, and there's a lot more guys talking about it now where you need to be aware of what you're eating. But there are ways you can lighten it up a little bit where you're not carrying um, too heavy a stuff, which is may not be as bright. But there, there's that balance there where you don't want to go in because if you're starving and you're not eating the right foods, it'll suck your energy. In Colorado, we're eating four to 45 or 4,000 to 4,500 calories a day. Mm. Um, wow. And it was, but this variety component, yeah, I knew I'd, I'd made each day into a different meal. So I had 10 day hunt, I had 10 packets of food and you have to force yourself to eat. It's funny when you're at higher elevations, you don't have the you appetite. Yeah, you don't, have you don't. Desire. And when you're going all day and going all day and then you get back to camp and you're dead and you just grab something quick and go to bed and the next day you're up going all day, you realize at the end of the day or at the end of two days, you've burned 12,000 calories and you've eaten 4,000 calories. And so guys start to get lethargic and lose that energy. It's amazing how tired and fatigued you can get. So when we go, I know each day I've prepackaged one day of food and it's everything that I've planned ahead of time, Snickers, candy bars, wh whatever it is. And then I have to force myself to eat all day. And so if you do that right, by the time you get back to camp and it's dark, a lot of times you don't feel like eating because mm -hmm. you've been eating all day. You're not, yeah. you're not going to bed because you're so tired you don't want to eat. You're going to bed because you feel full. And that can give you, obviously, every, you know, that feeds into the next day. But over a longer hunt, that is a huge part of being able to stay and hunt hard. For um, sure. So it's, it's a component of hunting that, again, guys are becoming more and more aware. But if you're not familiar with it, you need to be because it can, right. it can make a great hunt or it can just kill a hunt. When I had a 20-second a story. A friend of mine in high school got all geeked up to go bow hunting, and I did everything I could to help him get ready, and they hiked into this place Friday before the hunt, Friday morning. Well, Friday night, I had to stop by his parents' house, and he was back. And his mom said, yeah, he's downstairs on the couch. And I went down there, and he looked like he had died. He was laying there. And he got into this area to bow hunt. They had hiked in Friday morning. In the middle of the day, they got so tired and were hungry and thirsty that they started thinking about ice-cold Cokes. Oh, and they came off. They hiked like 16 miles that day and came off the mountain because he wanted to come home and have a Coke. And he just, oh, man. Anyway, I laugh at that, but I think, you know, guys that are kind of thinking about backcountry hunting, even, on, even going for a two- or three- or four-day hunt, yeah. it's something that guys should consider what kind of and and that's something ahead of time in the summer try different things you know don't go on the hunt and eat some of these foods for the first, yeah, time. first time right um you need to go and try things throughout the summer and the fall that you may or may not agree with and then that's what you take on the hunt and it'll help mm -hmm. that's where white tail guys not the food i mean the food side of thing but white tail guys might have a big advantage on the <coughs> mental fortitude on a long backcountry hunt maybe they haven't had the physical side attached with it but I mean, just like any other long sit, all day Sitting sit, or week day. long sit. I mean, having that, you know, ability to stay focused, that's huge. And so I think White Tail Hunters might be surprised at how much that ties over yeah. as long as they can, you know, learn how to, you know, apply it in the physical sense mm -hmm. as well. 
Yeah, I might not be a very good whitetail hunter because my patience is only <laughs> it's it's about tough. that it's long. Tough. You know what helped me? I started, after the first, the first year I went out, I realized, oh my gosh, this is going to be a long day. And you're just sitting. So every year I go out now, I just download books on tape. Because where we hunt, mm-hmm. it's, you get in and out cell phone coverage and you can't just sit and listen to your phone. But I download books on tape on my iPod. And then, you know, 10 a.m., I put one earpiece in and I just listen to stories. That's a great idea. So it's That's a good great. way to pass the time um, in some of these places that are kind of in and out with cell phone coverage. But that does help because you have to distract yourself from that 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. time slot. Yeah. You can... Seriously. Yeah. So how does... Um, I guess out here in the West and you're hunting mule deer, I mean, are you spotting and stalking most of the time or are you? do you ever set up like an ambush point where you're kind of sitting there waiting? Yeah, we, we generally try to be in first light in an ambush situation. So when I say we, I, I refer to my friend Matt Bateman, who I hunt a lot with, and yeah. we, we try to be at first light in an ambush situation. In an, we're, we're in a pass. Um, we're in a place that we feel like is strategic where we can glass from, you know, because when you're waiting for an animal to come to you, I think you have an advantage in that you're holding still and the animal's coming to you. So that in and of itself is an advantage in bow hunting. If you're not moving in on the animal and they're moving to you and the wind is right, then that's an advantage for you, but they have to be coming to you. So we'll right. try to position ourselves in an ambush location right off the bat. And if something comes our way, great, we're there. But then usually it turns into, okay, we've got something spotted. How do we want to make this play? And so it's a combination of both. But I think if you can start out in a strategically ambush, in a strategic ambush location and then hunt from there, um, and then when you can play a two-man game where you got two guys working together and you're on the same page, that increases your chances. I, I, I can't even tell you how effective it is when you're working with somebody. Yeah. Um, and usually both guys uh, have almost an equal opportunity that way. So when you're talking about this ambush situation, are you putting bucks to bed the night before? Are you spotting them first light and yeah. then trying to make a move on them when they're trying to move to their You, you know, we usually don't put areas? them to bed the night before because they're almost always up and moving during the night. Um, uh-huh. But, but I, I think what I'm referring to is when we've hunted areas in the past, again, this is where summer scouting comes into play, where you start to try to figure out over the course of the month and a half, two months before the season where the deer are, how they kind of generally like to do things. The one deer I killed in 2012... Um, he was so patternable. I found him early in the summer and he would work across the same face every day. And so I realized I need to put myself on that face. And that involved, you know, going in. So what I did in that situation was I went in about three weeks or two weeks before the hunt and I set a little bivy blind up, or excuse me, a little bivy tent. And I took everything I would need to hunt with and put it there. I wanted to see how he would react to it. I wanted to see if it blew him out of the country because I didn't want to go in opening night, set my stuff up, He's in the area, smells it, scares him, he's gone, and I've wasted the opening morning of the hunt. So I went in two weeks before the hunt, uh, made a place to put my little tent, and I built a little blind I could shoot from, and I put everything that I would need there. And then I sat and watched him, and he stayed patternable. He kinda, so I slipped in Friday afternoon before the hunt. I cleaned up right before I got to my camp, buried the stuff I cleaned up with, got into my little, little, uh, little tent, my little bivy tent, and I just hunkered down for the night, hoping I wouldn't, he wouldn't smell me, and so that's the situation. You, you must not snore. I don't. Okay. I don't <laughs> snore. That, actually, that was the same one I thought caved my feet on, but I was right in the middle of where he was, but I, that summer scouting gave me a pattern on him, so in a, in a situation like that, I would say you're summer scouting. If you can kind of see where their, what their pattern is, position yourself to kill them at first light, be in a position to try to kill them. And that can be hard to do. You know, if you're watching them going high over a pass in Colorado, 
Uh, I watched two years in a row, these bucks would go through this pass. Every time they got pressure, every time they got pressure, they'd go through this pass. So I went into that pass before the hunt, and I built a blind right in that pass. And I should have killed a couple actually really good deer from that blind, and things didn't work out. But it was that summer scouting. I can see what they're doing. I'm going to put myself in position. And then if it doesn't work out, you can always move from there. Um, but a lot of guys can go spot deer and see deer and find deer. Yeah. And then putting yourself in their bedroom to kill them is totally different. Right. So that's how we generally like to do things is use our summer scouting to try to pattern them, put ourselves in a position to ambush them. And then if it doesn't work out, we can move from there. That was a big mistake I made in the first couple of years of bow hunting. Since when I grew up, I grew up rifle hunting, it was more of a family activity, you know, it was just one week per year that I'd go hunting. Mm -hmm. So I'd show up and, you know, we'd drive out there and try to find deer and go shoot them. So when I started bow hunting on my own, I didn't realize how important it was to learn how to pattern the deer. And um, maybe this applies to other people as well that kind of have grown up in this similar situation. But I remember the first couple of years, I'd get up there at first light and just get up as high as I could on this rocky peak where no animal's ever even going to try to walk. <laughs> and I'm up there and I'm spotting deer and I feel like this great hunter and I can never get close to anything. But I come down, I'm like, well, dude, I saw so many deer today. Wow, I'm really learning how to do this. But I couldn't get close. And, and that was the biggest learning experience that I had learning that seeing deer is not killing deer. Yeah. And anymore taking pictures of deer isn't killing deer either. <laughs> and uh that's something that I have a lot of years ahead of me to learn how to do, but for it's sure. Something I'm I'm focusing on big time right now. Yeah, and I, I it's huge my own experience, you know, it always I'd hike into this area that I'd seen and be like, this looks like a great place to see a buck. Like this is the outdoor life yeah. picture perfect place and there's no deer. Yeah. It's like there's got to be deer. There's trees. You know, they got some water over here, some feed. But the deer weren't there. And that's where I, I totally was missing the whole point was that scouting aspect. Yeah. Because, like you said, like for me growing up, hunting was that one weekend, two weekends a year. We mm -hmm. go out on a rifle hunt. You didn't go scout out the area beforehand. <laughs> we didn't, you know. Yeah. It was just, uh, mm -hmm. well, let's grab the stuff and go hunting. Mostly just camping and eating steaks, you know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And if you don't live next to the, if you don't live in the area where the mule deer live, you don't have to feel like you have to move there a month before. I mean, a day right. or two, I would say, yeah. can be plenty. I mean, if you right. see a deer the night before, there's a good chance he might be there in the morning or the next evening. But I think definitely it, getting at least one day, maybe two, if you're coming from out of state, yeah. I think could be a huge thing. And even it, here, I mean, I can spot a deer in June. But since so many people use the mountains here on the Wasatch Front. For different Front, purposes. Deer get moved around <laughs> so much. Unless you're like Kip and you're just like 15 miles in and like the most remote. Like, But um, things can get stirred up even a week before. So, you know, knowing as much as you can is great. But sometimes a day or two is plenty and sometimes it's better. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's the component of like you just referred to is you can find a deer and watch him all summer and opening morning of the hunt guys come in in the dark and blow them out of there and it's all for naught. That's public land hunting. It is. Yeah. So, and everybody has the right to do that. So that would be the other suggestion is try to get to where you want to be the night before during daylight because these animals usually are more nocturnal than anything. And if you're going at 4 a.m., if you're busting up the hill trying to get to your spot, you're blowing them out of the area. So we try to decide where we want to be and try to slip in in daylight hours before the deer up and moving the night before, if you can. Because um, a lot of guys go in in the dark, and you don't know what you're blowing out of there in the dark. Exactly. So, yeah. so I was telling you earlier before we started about our Colorado hunt. Two things. Going back to your comment, Tanner, about a day or two before, we spent two days 
we were hunting, but really we were learning the unit. We were learning where we could access and where, because public land access in that unit was terrible. It was really hard. We there were narrow little pinch points where it's 50 yards apart was the property boundaries, you know, and you're mm-hmm. squeezing through this little chute, but it opens up. Um, and it took us two days to really figure out where we could go and where the deer were hanging out. And then I was telling you, we killed a, a deer the next three days. Wow. And it was just awesome, you know. And then uh, well, I lost my train of thought. Um, going back going to, into the dark. Yes, yeah. the dark, yes. So um, we were hunting with uh, Dylan Rydalch, and he's been hunting mule deer for a long time. And um, he, he always said, you know, there's no point getting up in the dark and driving past him. Yeah. Can't if you can't see him, you can't shoot him. And so on that hunt, we were there for five days, and we never left camp before sunlight. You yeah. know, and people are driving past our camp, and we're like, that thought goes through your mind. Well, crap, you know, like they might be beating us to a deer, but yeah, yeah. We try if you apply that to bow hunting and kind of the the high country terrain we're talking about. I try to position myself in a you know because you're kind of pushing it like I did with that one buck I was telling you about. I put myself right in his back you know, right in his back door there. And you're, you have to be careful. You don't want to put yourself too close. Like if you go in Friday afternoon and you're going to hunt, you don't want to put yourself so close to them that you're going to blow them out of there, but you want to be close enough that you can be in an ambush spot for them. So there's that delicate balance of if I'm going to try to kill this deer and he's working over this ridge, I don't want to come in in the dark and blow him out. So I'm going to hike in Friday night, but I want to be 300 yards from there and I'm going to nestle. So there's that whole component of strategically where do you want to camp? You don't want to blow them out by putting your camp up there the night before. So there's this balance of I want to be far enough away that I'm not going to disturb them, but I want to be able to slip in there in the dark without using my headlamp. So opening morning, I'm waiting for them. And, you know, there's that whole component of it as well. And it's just you figure it out as you go, I think. Right. I think it's years of learning that. I'm I'm sure. (laughs) Oh, I've messed plenty up. I've got more. (laughs) I got more horror stories than most. I got my top five animals that I should have killed, and it's a it's a sobering list to review in my mind because uh, I've I've had some trophies trophies slip through, and I look back and you know you have to just make mistakes, and even when you do everything right, ninety nine percent of the time it does. Mm-hmm. I always say in bow hunting, if it can go wrong, it will. And so I look back at some of the mistakes I've made over time, and some of them are just really funny. Actually, um, we make them every year, but uh, anyway, you learn from them. I've definitely learned from plenty of my own right it's a constant um school on yeah. the mountain you're yeah. always learning something different um kip how how important has scent control been in your hunting experience just hearing you talk here a little bit ago about wiping down and burying you yeah. know what you you cleaned up with tell talk a little bit about that because i i've heard a lot of different you know people have different opinions on it some t- think it's really really important and some people are like well yeah they're still gonna smell you anyway so just play the wind yeah well i will tell you i've my viewpoint has changed a little in that i used to just be crazy about it i would go in and i would always when i get to where i wanted to hunt i'd take my clothes off and i would wipe down and i'd put my clothes that i wore in in a garbage bag and try to bury it and leave i mean and and I because of some of the success I've had with Mueller, I can't say it, it hurt anything, and I don't think it does. But man, there's nothing you can do to cover up a a, a bad wind. There just isn't. It doesn't matter now. I realize, no matter what I've done in every situation I've killed in, the wind's been right. And so, and I we can all name thousands of experiences where the wind's wrong and it was the only thing wrong, and it went south. So I think even now, whenever we go and we hike in in one pair of clothes. The minute we get to where we're going to hunt, we take them off. Same thing. We put them in garbage bags. If I'm camping in the area that I'm going to hunt in, we garbage bag or sandwich bag 
everything just so there's less scent around. It's not going to hurt. Yeah. Um, and then we're wiping down. We're trying to control that. So I think for bow hunters, you have to, when you're hunting mule deer and the wind's going to shift on you, you have to play the wind. That's the most important factor. Doesn't, I almost think nothing else matters. If the wind's bad, these deer, unless something, 99% of the time, that's the most important factor. And you can cover your scent up all you want. And if the wind's bad, they will catch you. But it doesn't right. hurt to take some of these precautions now where we we do wipe down, we cover stuff. I mean, literally, we're taking pee bottles if we're going to set up in a ambush location so you can pee in a pee bottle. It sounds mm-hmm. silly, but if you go to the bathroom 20 yards from your setup, it's going to... So we take a pee bottle for that, and we take little things like that don't hurt. Yeah. You know, they don't hurt. So I think you have to try to control your scent to some extent, and then you just got to play the wind. You really do. That's the most important factor. So are you using any, like, product spray-on or wipes? Yeah, we do. Um, and, uh, and, you know, we've kind of tried them all. I don't know uh, which one's better than another, but we do. We do use product to spray our clothes down and our backpacks down because they have been scientifically proven to kill some of that human scent. Um, we were laughing at one before. It was this generic brand, and their logo was 100% equal success. And we're like... <laughs> Yeah, Ooh, I would say <laughs> yeah, I'd say that's that's true, 100%. <laughs> so, but I, you know, I think there's something to that, and you know, I like the products we're using now for whitetail, the Ozonics. They've been shown to really help in situations controlling your scent. So, I, I think that component of bow hunting is something you can never overlook. We've tried so many situations to move in on an animal when the wind was bad. And it never works, but then you can use that to your advantage too. So we thought, okay, we got a wind blowing south here. We're going to work Matt into position and get him 400 yards south of this deer. And then I'm going to work in and try to kill it. And it's probably going to smell me. And when it does, it's probably going to go south. And so that's where that two-man game, if you have a situation where you can't play the wind directly in your advantage, play it indirectly in your advantage and know that you're going to bump him. We've killed, I don't know how many deer we've killed now with our bows where that's the tactic we've taken is this deer's bedded up and we can see where they're at and there's no way we're going to sneak in on them. So we're going to put somebody in the what what we think will be their exit route, mm-hmm. and we'll take all of our time. We, there was one situation where Matt killed this awesome buck, where I bedded it up on this cliff face. It was with mountain goats. We got a picture of the wow. deer, and there's a mountain goat 20 <laughs> yards from it. Wow. And we That's took awesome. like three hours and got Matt had to scale a rock face, and and he finally popped out and got in position. I mean, that took three hours. And I moved in and tried to kill the deer, but knowing I probably wouldn't, and it ran right to Matt, and he shot it off this cliff face. But that's where the wind, playing the wind doesn't always mean, you know, taking the only option the wind's given you. It's, yeah. it's taking, again, take what the mountain gives you, and that's one tactic you can use um, to play the wind probably in your favor with the, with the, if the first guy moves in and it goes south. That's awesome. I yeah. never really thought about that, yeah. playing it the other way. Yeah, and it, uh, like really I cool. said, we've had more success almost doing that than anything. Yeah. Do you feel like you've had more success? I know you've hunted with Matt quite a bit. Do you feel like you've had more success having a partner or being solo? Do you, feel, you, know, it's do you a, prefer one or the other? I, well, I prefer hunting with somebody for a lot of reasons, um, and sometimes it's hard to find the right guy. Keeps you yeah. sane. We, yeah, had the, I mean, yeah. we talked about that with Mark, finding yeah. a hunting partner is yeah. like choosing a life partner. It is, you know, and, and there's so much that goes into it, and Matt and I were lucky. We just met because I killed a buck that we called Superman. It was a 230 buck, and I yeah. killed it using a Grim Reaper broadhead. So I sent Matt a picture. I didn't know Matt. Uh, a guy at the archery shop said, yeah, the rep's Matt Bateman. So I sent Matt a picture, and I said, I don't want anything, but I, that broadhead tore that deer up and use it. Use the picture. I don't, and that's, but that's how we met. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we started hunting together, there was, there was this immediate sense with, with Matt of he had nothing to prove. He'd killed 
He's killed incredible animals. I didn't feel like I had anything to prove, and that helped. That helped in this relationship hunting where we go out hunting now, and I'm like shoving Matt into position where I can try to bump to him. And so now, I, I, so I think that comes into the psyche a little bit of once you've harvested some animals, you don't feel the pressure. You don't feel like you've got to prove anything to anybody. You can just go and enjoy it. And when you've got two guys working together, you are more effective. Yeah. Um, the last two deer I've killed on the front that have gone Pope and Young, I killed on my own. And that there's a sense of accomplishment in and of itself there. There really True. is. Yeah. I mean, there is. For they, sure. they were two really challenging situations. And that's actually, I talked earlier about this buck I killed last year. It wasn't a huge deer. It was a good, mature four-point. But because I was alone and the situation was really challenging, I thought, I need to try this because mm -hmm. I want to prove to myself I can do it. So there's that component when you hunt alone. But when you're hunting with somebody and your, your tag team play works and you get to share it with them. That in and of itself, too, that's, uh, sometimes that's where friendships are bonded. Is, yeah. You know, you watch somebody that's worked as hard as you, and they just took an animal, and it's, you're part of that, too. And so that's not always easy to find, and I know that, and that's why that's when you find somebody like that, um, you know, there's, some, there, there's no animal worth putting in between uh, a, a friendship like that. And so I think that's some perspective to keep too is, you know, if Matt and I go out and we find an incredible animal, uh, you know, I'm going to try to put him on it and he'll put me on it and whoever kills it, kills it. But there's no animal that had ever come between us. And that's, that's something that that's I don't, important. yeah. And maybe not a lot of guys have that. I don't know, but there's no animal worth that. I, there's no animal no. worth that. I don't care what it is. That's huge. Yeah. We, we talked to Mark Smith about that. And we also talked to Kelly Cox on a recent podcast about that. And it's, I think that's, true character defining right there you know when you want to you want your partner to succeed more than you want to succeed yourself yeah. and I think that is a little bit of a hard pill to swallow especially if you don't have a whole lot of animals under your belt yeah. per se you yeah. know like you're like man I worked my tail off I was up here three more weekends in use during the summer mm -hmm. scouting and I actually was the one that found that buck but you're yeah, gonna well, go kill but, it? but you would hope your 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 friend there would know, would know that yeah you know we were I was this is funny so I had killed these two big non-typicals, and Matt had killed some big typicals. So we had this deal that when we started hunting, if it was a big non-typical, it was Matt's turn to kill it. And if we found a big typical, it was my turn to kill it. <laughs> so that year we go out and we find this big typical, but it's got a big cheater coming off. <laughs> so I'm like, well, that makes it non-typical. You know, or, or I was saying, no, it's a big typical. It's just got one little cheater. And Matt's like, no. So we, had, we called it TNT because we decided it was a typical non-typical and Matt, Matt would go for it and he killed it. He killed TNT, but it was kind of this banter That's back awesome, and forth right? of, now, wait a minute, is this a typical or a non-typical? And that was the one that he uh, made this incredible stock and got positioned above and uh, with a mountain goat, but that was one we had a little fun with. Like, oh, yeah. I don't know, Matt, is that a, is that a typical or a non-typical? Yeah, that's way yeah. cool that you have that kind yeah. of you know connection between the two of you. You can joke about it. Yeah, we but can joke you, about you each it. Want to see the other one succeed? Yeah, I think, I, awesome. I think he owes me now. I think. <laughs> and then we also have this thing we call the hunter efficiency score, where it's not just how big the animal is by inches; it's how many days you hunted, how many stocks you took, and then you take that's that and yeah, that. and then you plug it into the score of the animal, <laughs> and it kicks out this efficiency score. So you can say, well, your buck was one sixty and mine was one forty. But I only took two stocks. Your buck was your seventh <laughs> stock. And so we'll have to talk about that sometime, about this hunter efficiency score that That's comes like into play. That's like my brother. Too. My brother is the type of kid just happy-go-lucky, always happy all the time. He hunts like three days a year, but he always just kills a monster animal. He shoots his bow in like June just to make sure it's still dialed. Shoots yeah. like five times. Like, all right, it's good. So his hunter efficiency score it. would be off the charts. Yeah. Like that bull right there hanging on the wall, 360, smoked it on the last day of a hunt. He, I swear he doesn't even get nervous. And I'm out there just sweating my butt off, <laughs> hunting all day. 
all all year, just trying to get as many days in as I can. I'm just struggling. I need to find an app developer yeah. and someone good in an algorithm. Yeah. We can make it into an app. I need to come up with that. I need to come up with that. That might be the ultimate. Yes. That might level the playing field. I think it would be yeah, awesome. You yeah. plug in you know, certain yeah. criteria and it kicks and out it your kicks score. Out your score. <laughs> it's not just about the inches on the deer. It's about all these other factors. And yeah. Yeah, that would be can well. you see that in hunting magazines now? You know what? I actually <laughs> can. I can see yeah. that. The yeah. hunter efficiency score we'll on this deer is Pope and Young's going out the window. Pope and Young's gone and the... The HES is now taking mean more, right? Yeah, <laughs> it was. I like that. Now, 200-inch you know, deer and 400-inch bulls are commonplace. Except place. for when you work your butt off, like, all year, and you finally kill something, you end up with, like, a score of, like, like nothing. 20. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you killed this 200-inch deer, and you're mad, because your hunter efficiency score yeah. was, like, six. Yeah. <laughs> now, on a more of a serious note, um, you know, tying it back into what I was talking about originally, how... Maybe, you know, some whitetail hunters that aren't like the really hardcore guys that hunt all day on their own, you know, that, you know, a lot of people that hunt whitetail, it's more of a camaraderie hunt, you know, mm -hmm. spending time with people. If you can get that component on a really tough backcountry hunt, that helps so much to balance out the experience. Well, dude, I think the good, bonding there, you know, seeing each other, each other struggle and, and working, setting goals and accomplishing them, I think is a huge bonding Agent. You know, I have a, I had an experience last year. I drew a limited entry elk tag on the Wasatch. And uh, being a college kid um, and having the job I do, I hunted 23 days of the 28-day season. And Lucky. I wish I could say I have antlers hanging up on the wall, but long story short, I shot a bull on the last day, stud bull, but just didn't recover him. Just one of those, one of those things that happens. Right. It's a tough pill to swallow after that many days. But um, tying it back into this hunter partner thing, I remember... I was up there the the full last week or as much of it as I could, and it was the, the last day of the hunt. I was up there with my wife, and my wife's from Spain, so she's new to hunting. She loves it, but she doesn't know a lot. She was just kind of along for the ride. Mm -hmm. And being on an elk hunt, it's nice to have a caller, you know, so you can have someone call and pass you. That's huge. It's right. a game changer. And uh, the night before, I got a text from my buddy in the little split second of service that I had telling me that he was sick and he wasn't going to be able to make it up, but he was really sorry. And uh, I was like, oh, okay, no worries, man. I understand. I mean, if you're sick, you can't come. And the morning went by and didn't hear anything from him. And I remember me and my wife were sitting um, midday just trying to pass the heat. It was a hot day. And um, I wasn't expecting to see him. But all of a sudden, we hear a bugle coming up this ridge. We're hidden. I mean, we're way up in the hill. He had been up there where we had hunted, but he had no idea where we were. But we hear this bugle, and I start, like, bugling and, and use my glass to try to see what's going on. I see this hunter walking up the hill right up towards us, and we're sitting on a water hole. So I start waving my arms trying to, like, get this guy away. I'm like, no, we're here, and we've already got this spot. And I look closer, and it's my friend. He had driven up just knowing that I needed help, and he had no idea where I was on the entire mountain. He parked. He saw my truck, felt my engine, noticed that it, it was cool, so I'd been there all day. So he just started hiking. I mean, this guy, he was sick as a dog. And he just intuition or, you know, divine intervention, he walked right to us. Wow. In the middle of this mountain range. But it, it's, it's kind of silly, but I almost get emotional thinking about it because it just is like such a perfect example of, of what the important thing is. When we're out there hunting, chasing animals, you know, spending all this money on gear, the important stuff are, is, is stuff we often overlook. And I remember seeing him walking up the hill at me with his shirt off and his bandana around his head, just sweating and coughing. I just remember just having this feeling like I jumped up and just went running like a little girl to give him a hug. And 
that was a special experience. And uh, it just kind of ties together how much having a good hunting partner can mean someone that's willing to sacrifice for you, someone that knows how much doing something as simple as killing an animal can mean to somebody Mm -hmm. and doing that with somebody that that you care about. That's That's huge. huge. I don't want to get too sappy here, but I mean, (laughs) guys that that feel that know what I'm talking about. And it's, it's a big deal. Now, when you have that, it's a, it's a special thing. That's for sure. That's incredible. Ian, are you listening? Ian's on the line. Yeah. Can you guys hear me? Ian, uh, Ian missed my bull elk harvest because he was sick. <laughs> he How come you weren't there for me? No excuses, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're making me feel bad with your story. <laughs> it's okay. We got I it done. I just want to find a new friend for that hunt. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Thanks for sharing that. That's awesome. Um, yeah, that's great. For sure. When you when you find that hunting partner that you're willing to sacrifice for and you know pass up an animal for yourself, um, and you, you're both on the same page there. I think that's something you don't want to let go of, mm-hmm. for sure. And you know, you, they're they're a friend in all aspects of your life, on and off the mountain. You want to make sure you trust them before you get on the mountain, yeah. though. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> you know, sometimes their your life could be in their hands. Um, so going back to uh, the senses of the deer, and we talked a lot about scent, Kip. Um, what would you say is a, the mule deer in your experiences? second tops um uh i guess uh what sense what sense do they rely the, on yeah, yeah yeah i mean obviously we talked about smell being number one then b- whether it's hearing you or seeing you i don't know um you got big ears man. yeah they got big yeah. ears and uh, you know i don't i don't know i i feel like that i i really don't know because i think scent is so far above and beyond as number one and the other other ones are are kind of insignificant. The other ones are kind of details. (laughs) Like, you know, you get into the discussion about camo patterns and which is best, which isn't, and what can they see and what they can't. And then there's nothing you can do for sound other than muffle your, your footsteps with the stockasins. We talked about earlier that I guess that, but I, you know, I just, I think the, by far the most important is scent. I, and Mm -hmm. I don't want to belabor that point, but uh, beyond that, you know, I th- and, and I think they hear other animals all the time, but it's funny, even when you whitetail hunt, you, you start to be able to tell through sound when it's a possum coming, when it's a squirrel coming. So you can start to differentiate, at least I did more from a whitetail stand, different animals coming. My buddy that we were hunting was like, okay, I'll tell you right now, you're going you're gonna to hate possums. I was like, why? And he's like, by the end of the hunt, you'll know why. And he, and he said, you'll hate squirrels, but you'll hate possums more. And, I, and in that area, you know, the problem with the squirrels is you'll hear squirrels all day. Mm-hmm. And the leaves will be going crazy. But you start to be able to tell, okay, that's a squirrel. Mm-hmm. And, a, and a whitetail coming is this more methodical walk. Yeah. And that's what the possums, I, I soon found out, sound just like oh, really? uh-huh, possums coming at this methodical slow walk. And the possums kept fooling me. You don't see them nearly as often. But I, I was laughing after the hunt, like, yeah, I know what you mean now, because... So that sense of sound, I'm sure, is similar to a deer where they're on alert most of the time and, and they can differentiate the sound of footsteps coming mm-hmm. versus another animal. So uh, I, I just, I don't know. I don't know, but I, I think, I would, yeah. I would say, obviously, scent, most important. But um, sound and sight, I think, act together. Because if a deer smells you, that's all he needs and he's right, gone. Right. If a deer sees you, he may hang around for a second to see what you're going to do. And he may, you know, like a bull elk will, may see you, but he's going to, or hear you, but he's going to circle around until he smells you. Usually those two are, like you're saying, yeah. working in tandem. They're, they're going to hear you and then confirm with the eyes. Yeah, so yeah. I think if you can stay quiet, you're not going to draw their vision. Um, but it's, it's tough. If they see you, you, you're pinned down. I mean, but if you can keep their vision away from you by staying quiet, 
you know, I think they go hand in hand. Well, you know, it's interesting. There's a lot of guys, we talked about using the windier advantage in a way that maybe you haven't thought of before. And a lot of guys are doing that now with sight with decoys now where mm-hmm. they, it, it's, I've been amazed at some of these decoys guys are using and have an incredible success where they're banking on the, the animal sense of sight to work in their favor and they throw a yeah. decoy up. And so I think, again, as bow hunting is evolving and we're trying to figure out ways to beat these animals at their own game in their own backyard... You know, that's an area that I, I was kind of surprised when it came out. I thought that won't work, and I'm a firm believer now that whether it's an early elk hunt, a deer hunt, late rut hunt, or even these whitetail hunts where guys are throwing up decoys out in a, a cornfield to bring an animal in, that's where that's an aspect of their senses that we're using now in bow hunting more effectively where we're bringing them to you, you know. And so I think as guys think about that, we used to always think of using a decoy on a late-season rut hunt with mule deer, and there are guys using them now. August, September bow hunts on antelope. They're using them almost on any hunt they want. Elk hunts, they're huge. We killed a bull in um, Wyoming two years ago, and it was all because of, you know, one guy calling and throwing a decoy up in front of him. And so I think that sense of sight, if, if that is obviously one of their more keen senses, bow hunters are starting to, you know, I think as bow hunters, we're getting smarter. Yeah. <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I think as time goes on, we've got a lot more time on our hands to think of creative ways to... <laughs> all those failed yeah, stocks. All those failed stocks. And, 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 but I think, I think it's interesting to see bow hunting evolve into products and approaches that mm-hmm. kind of almost rely on the instincts of the animal to put them at a disadvantage. And I think using decoys is one of those. That yeah. I, and I'm amazed at how effective it is, you know, how depending on the species, but almost irregardless of the species, if they get eyes on you and they think you're something else, right? You know, then it could be a game a changer. More comfortable. Yeah, yeah. That's huge. Yeah, I, I've noticed some de- decoys have been getting a little more yeah. popular in recent years. And there's, and the there's great the videos decoys. as testimonials. <laughs> yeah, you know, you can, it's one thing to hear things and you wonder what's true and what's not. And now, because everybody's got a filming camera, mm-hmm. they're filming stuff. Yeah. And, you're, and I think that's helped a ton in bow hunting is you're seeing guys not just tell stories at the archery shop about what they did, but you're seeing them put it into play. And I, I know I've learned a lot as I've branched out from mule deer and started hunting other species. I've, I've been amazed at what I've learned because of what I've seen on YouTube and now on Instagram and everything else. You're realizing, God, there's a lot of truth in some of these rumors, yeah. quote right. rumors. And not even with the decoys, talking about that, not only to bring the animal in, but to just relax them. For example, my, that buddy I was talking about um, that I was telling the sap story about, uh, Nick Owen, um, he's he's my brother. I don't even really call him my buddy anymore. This is where uh, on the podcast, whenever he says Nick Owen, we need to have a violin start. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my wife makes jokes all the time about my boyfriend, Nick Owen. Celine Dion, but Titanic right. game. Uh, we own it. Um, but uh, this year on the Wasatch, on the extended archery hunt, we had a decoy. And it was beginning of the rut, um, but I always carry my Montana decoy around just for that reason. So if a deer sees us we can throw that decoy up really quick just to calm him down maybe Mm -hmm. enough to have him keep coming or at least you know have him not run away and we use that um there was this little buck he ended up shooting that was following a doe and we popped up over the ridge and they saw us we threw the decoy up and they stared at it for about five minutes but sure enough just decided you know must be a deer kept coming and he's he smoked this buck wow and uh i know a lot of guys are starting to do that there's um I mean, uh, Lance Harris, I was talking to him about a story when he killed that big buck he killed, and he's using the Be the Decoy hat right? and how that buck looked at him and then just relaxed and just kept coming. And, I mean, there's a lot of great products out there that I think we're starting to learn a little bit more about how mule deer's brains work, (laughs) you know. But uh, any, any advantage, I think, what we're getting to, any advantage you can get over these deer, 
is important because we're at such a disadvantage when it, you know, baseline disadvantage that we need all the help we can get. Exactly. They're in way better shape than any of us yeah. are. They have four <laughs> legs and we have oh two. Gosh, yeah. <laughs> and they can go without water longer than we can. <laughs> yeah. That's one of our big disadvantages here in Utah. A lot of the country we hunt is. is desert. Yep. And uh, in fact, last Saturday, I packed 10 gallons yeah. of water up the mountain, you know. <laughs> yeah, you're smart to do it now, though. We do a lot of that off-season filtering water and stashing it. You know, we get in while mm -hmm. snow's still melting. And, and when I grew idea. up in southern Utah, we'd go in when creeks were still running from high runoff, and we'd take in empty five-gallon jugs, fill them up, bury them, and then come back in in August when everything's dry, and, you know, we're filtering everything mm -hmm. to make sure we're safe. But... It, uh, you know, I, I know a lot of guys pack in water early, and I'm telling them if you can get in earlier than that and filter it and stash it, Even better. then better. you don't have to haul it in. Yeah, um, two years ago, yeah. we packed in a bunch of water. Last year, we were lucky enough to, a couple weeks before the season, found a little trickle. I mean, a little trickle. And uh, I checked it a couple days before the hunt, and it was still going. But it was so hot, it was one of those things that we, we packed up there thinking we may have to turn around if that thing dried up. But sure enough. We had enough of a trickle that for the first couple of days of the hunt, I mean, it'd take an hour to fill up a big, you know, camel pack, but you do what you got to do to yeah. save weight. I mean, yeah. that, packing water sucks so bad. It's not, oh, man. Oh, anything you can do to get around that. Yep. And it's amazing how little water they can go off of. Yeah. You yeah. Know? But incredible. they can also travel further for yeah. the water when yeah. you're stuck on top of the mountain, <laughs> yeah. not wanting to go back down. <laughs> exactly. You okay there, Ian? Ian's pumping the bass. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm, I'm just enjoying the conversation. <laughs> we are too. Just listening. So I'm learning a lot. Kip, um, if you had to throw a percentage of at it, how, ma how many times that, or what's the percentage ratio of your stocks that you'd say are successful? Oh, you know, if so if I looked at how long, so if I took the last 10 years that I've really been um, hunting, up in northern Utah, and then combine that with Colorado. Um, and so this isn't just deer we've seen that we've thought about going after, but an actual stock situation where a stock is what I would say when you're within 300 yards, and then you, you go into, I used to call it stealth mode, but you, you everything hones in. Mm -hmm. um, man, probably, I don't even know if it's 10%. I mean, it, it's funny because it ebbs. I don't feel that bad anymore. No, I mean, I mean it ebbs and flows. And that, you know, Matt and I went through a period where we killed, it was like five stocks in a row. It was, it was ridiculous. And they were big wow. animals. It was crazy. Yeah. And, then, and we, we have hunted long enough to know, okay, this is crazy. And then we more than made up for it with missed stock after missed stock. But it's interesting how more, um, kind of to answer your question, but how much more particular I've become about what stocks I want to do. Because there is, on, on public land, there's this component of um, having a sense of urgency and going, going when you have the opportunity, or it's, it's just not a good opportunity, you don't go for it. And, you know, for example, the deer I had last year, he was in a situation that wasn't an ideal stalking situation. It wasn't. He was clear up on this steep face, and the winds were, I didn't think, ideal. But on public land in this particular area, I thought, I got to go. I got to go for him now. So we, but in Colorado, when we're more in the backcountry, and we, we saw one other hunter on a 10-day hunt, one other guy, and we were chasing deer, um, that we would have loved to have harvest. It's just different terrain out there. And that comes into play where you got deer in a situation that may not be ideal to stalk him and you think, I can hold off. Mm. I can come back on. Let's watch him today. Let's see if he moves. So there are certain situations where you do feel like you have more patience than other situations where you got to push it. Um, I've, I've and, always admired guys that can watch a deer bed in a, in a bad spot 
to yeah. have the diligence to well, have the discipline to not go out. And it's them. and I think a lot of that is knowing uh, again in Utah public land Wasatch Front. Chances are, if that deer is visible, somebody else's got. So that is always going through our mind of mm. we got eyes on him when we know where he's at. How do we want to play this? And even then, you, if some situations are bad, you just know it's not going to happen. You don't move in. But when we feel like, okay, this is a viable stock opportunity, mm-hmm. it's probably 10%, it, honestly. But that's what guys don't see. They see pictures posted up. And you know, right now, you're seeing everything killed. And you right. get this false sense of, man, everybody's killing things. And you never know the backstory behind the failed stocks, the failed. So I, I don't know the answer to that. But man, we, we miss off so many more stocks than we are successful on. But I learn from every Every one of them. There that was, was a, my next question. Yeah, there was a stock last year, opening day. I found a buck, and he was like a 160 buck maybe, but he was bedded in this really, really bad. This is the first time I put stockasins on. He was in this really bad, thick avalanche shoot, horrible place. I've tried to stock one other deer in there, and I knew what I was getting into, so I put my stockasins on. I thought, okay, let's put these to work, and let's see how they do. And I got about halfway. I was about 150 yards from him, and going as slow as I could, quiet as I could. I didn't have eyes on him. But that was a stock I would have said, you're not going to, this isn't going to work out because once you get in that avalanche chute, the wind's going to be blowing up and you're going to blow them out. But I wanted to see what I could do with these stockasins. Mm-hmm. And I, in terms of quietness and stealth, it was the best I could have done in that situation, but the wind killed it. So I knew going into that stock, uh, it's probably not going to happen because I know what the thermals are going to be doing when I get over there on that steep face, but I want to mm-hmm. see what I can do with these stockasins. So that was a stock I kind of knew, uh probably not going to work out. And if I push it, I'm probably going to blow the deer out of here. But it was a class of buck that I thought if I blow them out, it's okay. If it's a 200-inch buck and I know the chances are slim that I'm going to get in on him and kill him, that's when I start to think, okay, he's in a, that, he may be in a spot. I don't think anybody's got eyes on him. I don't want to blow him out of here. Mm-hmm. So the situation really dictates that. Uh, blowing a 160 buck out on a stock I knew probably wouldn't go down. I might push it just to see what these stockasins could do, but it's very situational and, and right. definitely with a bow, you can do everything right, stock right, have the right sh- stockasins on and the right camo and play everything right, and then in the end, you got to hit the shot. And that's mm-hmm. sometimes the hardest part is holding it together to put a mm. shot on an animal. And so again, when it happens to guys and they're successful, and as a bow hunter, you appreciate what they just accomplished. You yeah, shouldn't feel jealous, sure. and you shouldn't feel anything. But man, that's we incredible. We should be congratulating because each other. Yep, because that kill shot at the end—that's <laughs> you know—that is the, where everything hits the road. And yeah, uh, so when guys pull it off, I I'm happy for them because usually there's a hours of backstory of practice that come into play, and usually some heartache. <laughs> you know, I don't know if we have time for, it, but I, I wanted to ask you, Kip, because um, I know I, at least I hope I'm not the only one that is, is trying to learn more about this um, thermals. Uh, for guys that maybe don't have a lot of experience with it or are still trying to figure out, can you explain a little bit more about the thermals in the mountains and, and their patterns and how that affects a stock? And yeah, um, hot air rises and cold air lowers, you know, so usually mornings and evenings the air is going to be flowing up, you know, and then in the afternoon, or excuse me, the other way around, excuse me, so in the afternoon you may, the thermals will change on usually depending on the time of day. So as the morning gets hot, it gets warmer and, it, you know, you may have a, like one area has a big peak to the east, and we know when the sun comes up and starts to peak, or that the winds, the thermals are going to change and start to move up. Mm-hmm. So the timing of that comes into play too, where you're like, oh, it's in the shade right now, the air's cool, it's probably either moving sideways or down. Um, that comes into play. The the deer I had last year was bedded up on a big wide open face. I caught him at first, first, first light, mm-hmm. barely, and he was bedded. It was kind of odd he was bedded, but I knew as soon as the sun hits, those thermals are going to pick up and start moving up. So I got to get at his level quick 
to try to get ahead of the thermals, and that's exactly what happened. As I moved really fast threw my stockasins on, got into this avalanche chute, worked up as fast as I could, and I got a little above his elevation right as I felt the sun was starting to hit. And you can feel the thermals pick up. You can feel when this, uh, the same thing in southern, but it depends, you know, again, if you're not hunting steep terrain and you're hunting flat, totally mm -hmm. different. It's totally different. That has more to do with just what's, what, what's the climate like in the area. Do you have a front moving in from the east or the west? And that's where playing the weather apps, again, comes into play now, even with mule deer, lowland situations, looking and see like the whitetail guys do, where's the Where's the wind coming from tomorrow? Is it coming from the south, the north, and play the situation that way? But in the steep, rugged terrain up here, there's more of that wind. And it's really hard to predict, but that's kind of what we buy on is mornings and evenings when it's shade and cooling down, the thermals are going to come down. Then you got the east and west, north, south stuff to worry about. But if you can play that in the afternoon when things heat up and the air starts to pick up, you have to consider that. And it generally, generally is true, is, is accurate. And that was going to be my next question is, and, and it sounds like maybe that's my answer. I was going to ask you, do you, do you feel like more of your stocks are from above an animal or below an animal? But I mean, obviously it plays on the wind, but I'm assuming yeah. in the mornings you're maybe stocking up. Well, we try below. to get above them. We try to hunt. And above. I know a lot of guys that, again, that's where coming into the area, if you can, the night before and getting above them, ambush stuff. You know, deer are just so much more... Um, apt to look below them. I think most animals are. They're looking for danger from their level and below, usually. So I think anytime, and a lot, a lot of guys that I know are just diehard mule deer bow hunters, try to get above them. You try to be above them, waiting for them. Yeah, I think you always have an advantage being above them. Um, they tend to work yeah. uphill in the morning as well. That's a, yeah. definitely a yeah. So I, I just think anytime you can get above them, you know, just like us, if you're up hiking, you're, uh, anyway, you're, it's so easy to look down. I just think they have less of a sense of urgency that there's danger from above. And I think it's to your advantage to be above them. That makes it harder. I mean, it just does. If mm -hmm. you got to get above them and set up above them. And, you know, the deer I killed, uh, the Superman buck, my biggest deer, that is how I killed that buck is I bumped him opening night. I, I had a shot at him that was not a good shot at 40 yards. And I, I had him through the brush and I could have hit him, but I couldn't have hit him ethically. I would have hit him in the back end. So I passed on that shot and I thought I'll never get a chance at him again. The terrain he was in, the area he was in, I was lucky to find him that night. And I thought I just missed my opportunity. And I watched him start to work up, and I thought, in the morning, I got to be above him. I got to be on those rocks. I have to. That's, so I got up at whatever it was, 3 or 4 a.m., and, and took my time circumventing where I thought he might be, so I wasn't even close to spooking him in the dark. And I got where I thought he may be and got above him in the rocks. And the next morning, he happened to come below me, and I killed him. But it was playing him from above. I never would have killed him from underneath him. So I think if you can do that, if you can get above him, they, they're more apt to look for danger at their level and below. That makes sense. Yeah. 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 Awesome. Yeah, for muleys anyway. Do you try to wait for the thermals to settle before you... It do, again, it's, it's just so situational, but you can look at where an animal is bedded up or going to bed up. You know, if they're moving up a face and there's a patch of pines or a shade where you think they're going to bed, you start to think, okay, they're going to bed down there. They're going to be bedded when the afternoon hits. And if I'm going to be moving on them in an hour, that mm -hmm. starts to come into play. What are these thermals going to be doing? And then you're checking as you go. Matt and I, as, you know, as we're moving in, we're constantly asking each other, what's the wind doing? What's the wind doing? Because you may have a front moving in from the west, and the wind isn't going to be rising as much as it is kicking in from the west. So we're always checking. We'll be glassing trees across the way to see if the trees are moving. And that component of wind checking, sometimes you can't play it all the time, but you have to consider it. You just have to. And again, like I said, you can work it in your favor. I've seen a situation where we killed a deer, where we bumped a deer from 250 yards with our scent, where we got a guy set up above him on the backside of a spine 
And I thought, I'm going to step out here. I'm 250 yards, and this buck's going to go. And that's exactly what happened. I got two. And so we do things where it's a hard bump or a soft bump, where we, we want to get the buck out of their bed and moving, but we don't want to get them just ripping, you know? Yeah. So sometimes we'll get 200 yards in the bumper. We'll just start talking loud, talking loud, and the deer will notice him at 200, 250 yards, 300 yards, and the deer will look at him and doesn't get alarmed. And then the deer stands up, and then the deer picks its route, and it moseys. And that's an approach that, you, that we try to implement unless... The, the guy moving into bump thinks he can kill it. And then you're, so if you think you, the guy bumping. It's like spec ops. Yeah, it is. So it's like, I know, if I think I, if I think I can, yeah. yeah. But, it, but it's amazing how it works where if you got a deer where there's no way you're going to sneak in on it. It's bedded in a vantage point and it can see everything from below and you can't get at him from above. Why are you going to send a guy in to try to kill it? Get a guy positioned on its escape route. And once he's set up, just do a soft bump on that thing. That's Let him great. know you're there. He'll get up and if he moves slowly, this happened, this was funny in Colorado. Um, I hope this doesn't go on too long, but it's a fun story. This is actually one of my favorite stories to tell. So we're in Colorado, and we watch these mule deer feet clear up on this cliff face and bed down. And they're bedded in a horrible spot. And I'm sitting there with Matt and Brad, and either Matt or Brad said, well, there's no way we can get on those deer there. I mean, it was literally, again, mountain goats. I, one of my favorite pictures, and I deleted it, was these two 180 bucks, and there's a big billy right next to him on this little shelf. That's so Matt's like, or Matt or Brad said, there's no way we can get onto those deer. And we're looking at them from below, and I thought, you know what? They can't go left. It's cliffs and they can't go up, it's cliffs. And if I come from below, the only way they can go is back to the right. So we set up a situation where I moved Matt and Brad to the right, and they got positioned 200 yards from these bedded deer, then I just started slipping up the face below them. And I thought, there's nowhere else they can go. I'm not gonna get within 100 yards of them. And when they stand up, they'll go over to Matt and Brad. So I get to about 90 yards or 80 yards I hesitate to say the yardage because this, these bucks stood up and I'm like, okay, hey, they're going to go. And they just stood there. They kept looking at me and looking at me and they actually gave me time to shoot and I shot and killed one. Wow. Um, but when, they, when I hit the one I hit and they both took off and ran, they went right past Matt and Brad. And if I wouldn't have shot and if I'd have just done a soft bump and gone slow, they would have ex- exited and gone right past Matt and Brad. Right, I mean, they would have gone. It would so that's at, at a speed that they could have shot. Yeah, they, so the one buck just went ripping. It's actually a funny story. The first buck goes ripping by. So my friend Brad pulls up, and as my buck comes through, I've already hit it, and it stops in front of Brad to die. And it would have died there on this perfect <laughs> little bench. Brad lets one rip and takes out the front leg, and my buck jumps and just goes. Piling oh 600 God. yards, <laughs> broke every horn on its rack. Oh, so I got a picture, man. and I'm holding the deer, and one of the horns has got an elastic on it. And I'm holding the other one on the main beam, and we gave what Brad the hardest time. Though. But he didn't know what had happened. It was funny. But that's, again, a situation where you're playing escape routes and angles, and you can be as strategic as you want, and then it does come into play. And, you, when, and that's why when it works, you think, hey, that was kind of cool to see that's great. how it played out in a way that we thought maybe it would, and it does. Yeah. Oh, that's huge. I'm learning so much. Yeah. <laughs> Another question. So I love picking your brain. Um, you said you, you can bump a deer with your scent from out to 250 yards. If the wind's strong enough. Depending yeah. on the wind. On a normal stock situation, I know it's hard to generalize all of them, but at what point, at what distance do you say, okay, now I really need to move slow and be quiet? 150. Okay. Usually you get to that 150 range, and that's where... Is I, that when you would take your boots yeah, off at yeah. that and point? Yeah, and it depends. The deer I killed last year, I had my boots off at 600 yards because there was no way... I was coming from below again, okay. so if I made any sound, they're locked in on me. I see. So, but anytime I feel like, hey, it is time to sneak, 
that's when I now put on my stockasins and I you go drop into, your backpack yep, too. drop everything. And, mm-hmm. and you know, one thing a lot of guys will learn and I learned the hard way. We, I think we probably all have, you're going to lose that backpack a lot. Do you GPS it? <laughs> you, I don't GPS <laughs> it, but you know what? I, I'm going to start doing, I haven't done it for a long time, but I look back and I've done it. And it's funny where you go back and your backpack's not there. I spent all day one day on the front and I was within 20 yards. I couldn't see it. Some guys now just carry, they just know they ribbon. carry a little ribbon tape and yeah. they're throw them in your stockasins and tie it to a tree. Anyway, but it depends. But usually with mule deer, when you're hunting this stuff, it may be even 200 yards, it depends. But man, you got to go into stealth mode at that point. And that's where if I see a deer and you're running out of cover or you feel like, okay, within 150, maybe 200 yards, I'm dropping my pack quietly. I'm slipping into stockasins. Um, and that's where a lot of times too, I will take off my outer wear. And I'll, you know, a lot of us now have um, base layers um, I'll put, I'll slip into nothing but base layers. Um, getting intimate with the honestly, because it, <laughs> it's funny bow hunting. If it can go wrong, it will. And if you got yeah. loose clothing, if you got pants against brush versus base layers, I honestly used to do it in my underwear when I was really young because it was so you know, much. I'm, I'm coming out with some, uh, yeah. some loincloths. Yeah, it, yeah. <laughs> the Kip Fowler the Kip edition Fowler signature yeah. But it's so <laughs> funny how, yeah. <laughs> when you get in tight with the deer, that little, you know, the different fabric on different camo companies now softer fabric is quieter backpacks some are noisier than others and those little things i can't help but know that in some situations if you don't take them into account it costs you so now uh, again a lot of times if i'm moving in in stealth mode on an animal i'm dropping my pack and i'll i i will take the time to slip into some base layers um because it's that hundred every, a lot of guys can get to 150 yards and when you got to take it from 150 to 50 that is a totally different realm of moving in on mm-hmm. an animal and those little things. The guys that consistently kill high country mule deer, uh, there are guys out there that do it so consistently. And I promise you, if you grill them, it is these little details that don't come into play at 400 yards, but they come into play at 200, 150 and in that they are just meticulous about, that they plan for. And um, I remember you telling me we were chatting in your trophy room some weeks ago about how you're left eye dominant, right? Yeah. But you shoot right handed. Yeah. And you yeah. told me that you even thought about gluing on an extra pin on the outside of your housing in case you're shooting in low light and your left eye yeah. kind of takes control and moves your line of sight over. Yeah. Yeah. You're even getting, I mean, yeah, I, I that did was that a one crazy year. detail. I, I shoot, oh, wow. Yeah, I shoot, I'm left eye dominant, so I shoot a gun left, but I aim a bow. I shoot a bow right handed. So, you know, when you're closing your left eye and you're aiming with your right eye, and if it's really low light and you can't see through your peep, if you're right eye dominant, you can open both eyes and things don't shift. Mm-hmm. So if you're really low light, you can open your eyes and you can probably see your pins and get really close to shoot. Well, I had this huge deer coming in through an ambush location. I mean, he's a buck that haunts me to this day. We figured he would go 212. He's just a neat big buck. I hunted him for four years. And the year before I had him coming in, and I knew he was coming in right at dark, and I knew if I pulled back and I couldn't see through my peep, if I had to open both eyes, my pins were going to shift on me. So I glued a pin to the outside of my sight housing, so if I had to open both eyes, I could open both eyes and see that pin. It was dead on at 20. That never came into play that year. The next year, I switched bows. I didn't do that, and it cost me. That buck came in at, right at dark, last light. I pulled back. I couldn't see through my peep. I could barely make out my pins, and... If I would have taken that same meticulous approach with that buck, I'd have killed him. And he's one of my five that I refer to that I, I just think I should have killed that buck. He was one that I had a lot of history Amazing. with. But that yeah. little detail, it's all about the detail right? that little detail, the guys that kill consistently, if you pick their brain, it's not what happens 400 yards and out. It's 200 yards and in. And man, they, they're these little things that they have pre-thought of 
that if they if they do this, it may not come into play, but it might. And and bow hunting, if it can go wrong, it will. And if you plan for some of that, um, it's amazing how those little things. Yeah, and some of it those yeah. probably come from years of experience, right? Oh yeah, you, you know, on a stock and. You're, you learn one little yeah. thing. It's like, I all right, write next, a book. from now on. I need to write a book of you should. You really <laughs> the, the, the failures of a, of a trying bow hunter. Cause I, and it's not just some of the animals that I've not been able to harvest. That's what keeps me coming back, though. That's what keeps us all coming back is not only harvesting an animal that keeps you coming back, but when you don't and you think, man. And sometimes, like I said, you can't do things different. You, it, there's so many things that are just sometimes out of your control. It's luck, it just is. Really. And there's things out of your control. And, but like I said, man, when it all comes together... It makes you appreciate the fact that it all came together because it's just so often that it usually doesn't. So when it does, you start to think about everything we've talked about and you realize it just happened for me. I had a friend uh, last year that called me right before the hunt and he's never harvested a mule deer with his bow in the velvet. And that was such a big thing he wanted to accomplish. And I talked to him about some things and he went out on his own and harvested a mule deer with his bow. And it, it, it made me so happy for him that he accomplished something that he appreciated it was hard. It was yeah. hard for him to do. And so anyway, it's, it's a culmination of when it happens, you sit back and think about everything you've thought of and mm. it just makes you appreciate it when it does happen. That's one of the great things about bow hunting. Since, you know, I got into bow hunting kind of on my own after having grown up, you know, being taught uh, rifle hunting. And I remember my first year, um, I hunted pretty close to home because I didn't know where else to hunt. So I just hunted out up here on the mountain above my house. And I hunted 33 days of the season before I actually killed a deer. And um, I was a high school kid, just barely graduated, so I had a bunch of time. But I remember I finally shot this little dinky three-point, but it was so important to me. I mean, it, it felt better than any other big deer I'd ever shot with a rifle. And not, not to dig on rifle hunting, because you know that's it's another thing in itself, but it was such a different experience that um, the size of the deer didn't matter to yeah. me. And I think that uh, that's something that people should remember. I mean, especially when, um, I mean, everybody's killing huge deer on Instagram and we, seeing it on social media and stuff, it seems like it's easy to do. We have to remember that it's a, it's a long road to get to where guys like Kip and, and Matt are at, but you shouldn't feel bad yeah, about, no. about the little victories along the way and, right. and just killing a little bit bigger and you deer know what? every year. Just, you said something that I do want to touch on quick, and that's there, there in my opinion... There is a difference between a public land, do-it-yourself archery kill, than even a private property kill, and a, a guided hunt. They're just different. Um, it doesn't take away from anything that's on private property. It doesn't take away from guided hunts. But when guys do it on public land, and they do it on their own, either with their buddies, but I, I think there's, there's, in my opinion, there's something more to that accomplishment. When I hear about guys killing animals on public land with their bow, and it's a... DIY. I think there's something that to me that appeals to that because I, it, it, man, there's a lot of, and this is where the, the trap of social media is now is we're seeing all these incredible deer being killed and it doesn't take anything away from the deer, but all, so many of them are private property guided hunts and it's not the same. It just isn't. I'm sorry. And if guys get offended by it, so be it. But that is not the same. Um, showing up Friday and going in hunting Saturday and killing a deer out of a blind that you've never laid eyes on versus guys that are packing in and scouting and hiking and trail cams and grinding it out on their own dime and their own money or, or their own time. Mm -hmm. There's more to me that that story has a lot of appeal. Uh, I have a lot of good friends that are guides and, and they work really hard for their clients. Um, but there's something 
about doing it on your own that really appeals to me. That I, so when I hear these stories like Tanner just shared, I love it. Again, yeah. I love it. I think good on that guy. Good on him. Well, you can relate. You've experienced it. You've gone through all that stuff. You you know the emotions that he's. I felt, do, and, and and that's why I don't want to downplay the private the guys that do private and guided hunts because it is their experience. That's theirs. I, right. I get it. And right. they can have a similar experience to Tanner where they, it becomes this epic thing for them. But because I've experienced the public land side of things, I understand it's a different ball game. It just is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for the guys that get it done on public land in situation, and, and then you throw the high country into it even more at that to me, this is a personal opinion. I just, I have so much respect for that. And, I don't care if luck fell their way that day or if they planned it all out meticulously and it worked. I don't care. <laughs> I've had plenty of luck on my side. And so guys will say, oh, I got lucky on this year. And I think, well, good for you. That doesn't happen often. Take it where you can get it. Yeah. But I, I do think there's something to that, like the experience Tanner just described, because of the, the time and effort factor that guys are putting in on their own on public land. For sure. It's part of that goal setting and yeah. achieving. And it's, it's something deeper than an yeah. animal. Yeah. You know? Um, wow, we've been we've been going for a long time, hour and a half. Wow, yeah. No way. Um, maybe just to kind of wrap it up, I do want to hit you with a few questions that guys might be you know curious about for both of you. Um, just kind of rapid fire. We'll just briefly hit them. Um, first of all, like what kind of boots do you guys run? I I use. Lawa, Loa, L O W, and but everybody's boot is so different depending on their foot. It, it is That's, a personal. So I, I thing. am meticulous with my boots, and they're they're specific to my feet. And so guys can wear Zamberlin, and guys can wear Danner. And Would guys, you say yours are on the flexible side? My, or my feet, side? I have wide feet, and so I there's different components to factor. And you want Vi- Vibram soles are the best soles I found. You want Gore-Tex, but something that's breathable. I don't know if you want a high top or a low top. I have to have a wider toe box. Some boots are specific for narrow toe box. but I just know that is one thing I do not skimp on as I find a yeah. boot that fits for me and the lower renegades work for me they have all those components you may try on something else crispy I, I don't have arches or, so uh, I have to have a really stiff boot yeah. otherwise my arch just it just doesn't have the strength to hold up on a long day hike so I need a stiff boot to be able to support my foot and that's something I learned um, some years ago, I was going to get just like some Danner pronghorns or something, just one of those boots that's just famous, you know. My dad talked me into spending more money and, and getting a really st- stiff boot. My boots, the, um, I wear Mindels or yeah, however you pronounce yeah, that. Yeah. And I wear their, I guess um, Cabela's calls Perfect them now, hike, their, right? um, their Alaskan guide yeah. boot. Yeah. And it's a stiff boot. It's, I don't, I don't know if you'd consider it in the mountaineering range, but it's close. It has, I mean, it has a shelf on the back for your crampons. So they're, I mean, they're really stiff, but it's what I need. So yeah. kind of like Kip yeah. said. Feet are I so think personal. It doesn't matter <laughs> what you get um, as far as is um, the specific boot or brand. But what like works Kip for said, you, do yeah. not skimp on boots. That's all I can say. I mean, I'm a poor college student, so that's. That's easy for factor. me to say and hard to do, but I, I You would know what I will say, say too, that something that I have learned, Tanner, is get boots from a place that's reputable. Don't buy them online for the cheapest price. Go to a place that's reputable because most of these places, you need to try the boot on out in the woods. And if they don't work for you, most of the places that are reputable, you can take them back and just right. say, look, they didn't work for me. Mm-hmm. So there are places here in Salt Lake that th- that's what I do. I'm not trying to cheapskate anybody, but I don't mm-hmm. want to spend 300 bucks or more on a pair of boots. And then I take them for a week and I realize I've messed up. 
So I'll try different boots on and try to make the best call. But then there are situations where you got to take them back. And say they're just they're killing my feet. And most good places will take them back, no questions asked, and let you try something else. But man, you can't get that one wrong. I would also yeah. say be patient when you buy a pair of boots. Work them in. Yeah, they do take at, some at least wear time. them for you know three hikes before you say they're bad or good because they can go either way after that. But that's good marriage sure. advice too. <laughs> yeah. I told my wife, you got to give me more than three weeks. <laughs> give me a break in period. <laughs> That's hilarious. Oh, do you guys? So I know Tanner. You said you rifle hunt. Kip, do you rifle hunt at all? The only rifle hunt we do is we go hunt bears in the spring, and okay. we're hunting desert country. So you have to be able to sit back and bang. Mm-hmm. And more is for my kids now, like my son Pierce. Two weeks ago, harvested a bear, his first big game animal. So we rifle hunt in the desert for bears caliber uh, you used? seven mag okay um and again caliber depends on the bullet you're shooting and if you can customize your bullet uh, I, I caliber doesn't mean a lot to me if you don't have a customized bullet if you don't if you're not able to get some reloads that work you can shoot mm-hmm. a 30 out six or a 270 or a 6 mm and if the bullets doesn't carry a good ballistic coefficient out to 400 yards plus you're you know you're just wounding animals or lobbing lead so i think whatever caliber you choose to go with you got to look at getting a reload that works for that gun and find somebody yeah. good Find somebody good. There's guys I could recommend here in the West that are incredible about taking any gun you have and then finding the right bullet for it. And it doesn't matter the caliber. Yeah. So, What do you like to shoot, Tanner? Well, I'm lucky enough, if you look behind your shoulder, you can see all the reloading dies. My oh, dad, man. My dad takes his long-range shooting pretty seriously. Um, not so much um, in the new age aspect of, of buying a military-type um, stock or platform. He's more of the old school where he'd buy a hunting rifle and then just work it from bottom, you know, from top to bottom, redo it to make it good out to 1,200 yards. But I've been fortunate enough to not have to learn too much about that. My dad just hands me a gun and say, this will work for you. And <laughs> we go out and he, he taught me how to pull a trigger well and how to be proficient out to long distance. But um, I shoot a different caliber every year just because he hands me different guns that he hasn't shot in a long time. <laughs> but um, I know a lot about archery and the, the specifics about that. And I'm learning how to um, load muzzle loaders and all that and yeah. work out loads but rifle I still haven't dabbled too much I, I haven't rifle hunted much in the past in, in the past couple of years I've almost all archery but I'll, I know I'll be getting back into it now that my I'm getting my wife into hunting I want her to start with a good experience rather than the the high country struggle <laughs> with the bow breaking but, in uh, slowly yeah. on that one <laughs> what kind of bow are you shooting Kip so I have the new Hoyt this year um I've shot Hoyt the last few years, and I love, I love, you know, I love my bow. There's, but I, I, again, I think bows are different for different what guys. For they, they just are. I know, you know, guys switch bows every year because they can, and uh, I am. It's been hard for me to switch bows every year because I find something that it's so hard to get my bow tuned in and shoot in the way that I like, and it takes so much time that I usually just like to keep it for a while. But yeah. I'm trying the new Hoyt. Um, but I, yeah, I'm shooting Hoyt now. I shot Matthews for a long time and loved it. So. Um, you know, but I'm shooting my Hoyt. I can't talk to it yet because I don't have it yet. It's getting set up right now. I should have it any day, uh, but I'm anxious to go shoot it. We talked to Justin Finch uh, not too long ago on one of the podcasts we did with Kings, and he just this year retired his Switch Matthews, yeah. right? Yeah. He just had that thing forever. I'm telling you what, when you get a bow dialed in, you don't want to change that. Uh, honestly, <laughs> no. I, it's so much work to get them. And then you just get a feel for them. It's not just get the bow performing well. Most of these bows now, you get them to yeah. the right bow shop and a bow tech and get the right setup, and the bow will shoot. But what do you feel comfortable with? And so that's where I tell guys, man, you don't need to switch every year. And if you got one dialed in, I don't care if it's yeah. five years old or 10. Or yeah. If you got it dialed in, 
unless you're shooting all the time, we have the time to tweak it. But yeah, I just I I have a hard time switching bows every year, and I I seem to have been doing that more lately. But man, I'm, I'd, I'd tell guys out there. If you got something dialed in, just leave it as is. Well, it's like you yeah. said a little while ago. I mean, it all all that stuff, as long as it all goes right, it all comes down yeah. to the shot, right? Yep, and if the shot, if you're not comfortable. <laughs> I, I got a new bow a couple years ago and didn't get it till right before the hunt, and it cost me a deer. I just wasn't wow. comfortable. I wasn't comfortable shooting it, and it wasn't the bow. It was me with that bow. Mm-hmm. So, you know, guys are Bowtech guys and Matthews guys and Hoyt guys and um, elite guys, and it. I, I just think what is comfortable for you make it work and and once you find it stick with yeah, it they all yeah. kill deer yeah they do yeah, yeah. They're, they're but the bows now the even top the end bows ones. yeah even the pink ones they're incredible the top end bows yeah. are are really good now and if you find a good bow guy that can get you set up with the right equipment uh it's it's incredible what these bows will do i was having a conversation the other day with a guy about how how much technology is too much in the world of quote primitive weapons you know because <laughs> we we get these bows now that are getting these garmin range finding right. sites and it's just like man uh getting back to the basics sometimes is appealing because at the end the equipment's just getting incredible and you can so much get tough lost to, stuff to maintain you're yeah. worrying about batteries for this batteries yeah. for that you know my buddy in <laughs> illinois billy hale he he made his own longbow one year he's a carpenter he's a wood he's a craftsman so he made his own longbow from a piece of wood he cut from his home made his own string out of deer sinew wow. made his own arrows bought the metal broadheads Fletched him, went up to Alaska and killed a caribou with it. Wow. And I think, you know what? That's as impressive. I, so when I see you guys going traditional, yeah. I have nothing. And I, but I think in a part nothing of it. Nothing but prayers I th- for I th- I'm happy for him. <laughs> uh, but I just think, you know what? That simplicity almost seems nice to have because you don't have to worry yeah. about timing, you know? Well, how much cooler of a story to yeah. say, I built all this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I built all this myself. Yeah. But, that, that, but that speaks to Billy. That's who he is. But That's cool. Yeah, yeah. Tanner, what about you? What kind of boat are you shooting? Uh, last year I shot the um, the Carbon Defiant, um, but the year before that, and the one I'm shooting this year, I'm shooting my prime rival. Out here in the West, a lot of guys shoot a longer axle axle bow, gives you a little bit more forgiveness out at you know longer distances, since mm-hmm. it's not uncommon to have shots um, and ethical shots. I'll add out to 90 yards, depending on how trained you are, and even past that, you know, um, it just depends on every person. But um, I just think that. Air, Every brand makes bows that can kill deer. And uh, the only thing I would add to what Kip said is that I think it's important, whether you have someone set up your bow for you or not, I think it's important that everybody understands how to set up a bow. Whether you're doing it yourself, whether you have the time to do it or not, I think everybody should learn that. Because if you're in a situation um, in the field or, um, or, or not, I think it's important for you to know what's going on with your equipment. If you're going to be using it to take an animal's life, I think it's important for you to know what's going on behind that. And I say that just because I don't want to act like I know more than anybody else because I don't, but I, I've tried to put as much time into learning that stuff as I can. I say that just because I, I've met some guys, great guys, that kill deer, probably kill more than I do, but they have no idea um, what's going on with their bow. Mm-hmm. And uh, not to dig on them, but I just think it's a, it's a responsibility we have to understand our equipment. Yeah. I don't know. I don't want to get too, like, serious or gung <laughs> about that, but yeah, I, just, yeah. I just think that's important. It baffles me. I was in archery shop um, here in Bluffdale a couple of years ago, and I was getting ready for my hunt. And I had been living in Texas for three years and hadn't really had a chance to shoot my bow, drew that elk tag, and I'm like, I got to get serious, you know? So 
probably later than I should have, but it was in the summertime, and they were telling stories of these guys that'll come in day before the hunt, oh, throw man. down a couple grand, and say, "I want you to set me set up a bow. bow up I want me. you to sight it in for me. I'll be back tomorrow, pick it yeah. up." You know, it's you know, like, it's interesting. This is an interesting <laughs> point. So last year, I had I was shooting a new bow, the Carbon Defiant, which I love. I loved the bow, um, and you know, it has a slider sight. I shoot a slider sight now, and. Uh, the slider sight is determined. Your gapping on your slider sight, your slider tape is based on all these measurements from your bow. It's it's right. so now guys can take a bow. They measure the feet per second, the distance from the peep sight to the riser, and and the arrow rest, and they take everything into account. And it spits out a, a slider sight tape for you that, by all accounts, should be dead on. It should work. So yeah. it was interesting. So I had that done for my bow, and then I was out shooting my bow, and my 20 to 60 pins were on, and then I had my slider sight. And I was shooting long distance, and it wasn't it wasn't lining up. It was way low at 70, 80, 90, 100 yards, and I mean significantly low. And I took it back to the guy working on my bow, Kevin Wilkie, and Kevin said it just doesn't make sense. Everything I've done in that slider tape should work. I mean, it should work. And I said, well, Kevin, what do you suggest I do? And Kevin said, Kip, do what works for you. I mean, so what I did is I had to make my own slider tape where I knew my 70 was on, my 80 was on, my 90 was on, mm -hmm. 100 was on, and it didn't match up to the tape that my bow should have used mm -hmm. and the deer that i yeah. killed last year the reason i killed it was because i made my own tape i was shooting that bow at 80 90 100 yards and i the tape i put on was why i killed that deer because if i had just taken it out of the shop never shot i never would have killed that deer you got to know your equipment. so you got to know your equipment and then you got to know your effective range and you know what nobody's the same there are guys it's in situations where at 30 yards you are <laughs> jacked up and your bow is shaking yeah. and you know you're going to miss the world and then there are times at 60, 70 yards, you feel locked in and yeah. you feel, and last year, that's cool, what I ended up doing. He, I, I pulled back on this deer and because it was a longer shot for me, I put my pin on this buck and I thought, this is a longer shot. How do I feel? And I actually pulled my pin off the deer, kind of closed my eyes, took a breath and pulled back in and dropped my pin in right behind his shoulder. And I felt good. Otherwise, I didn't want to shoot. Yeah. But in that moment, I felt like I feel good. There's no wind. This deer's broadside. But the situations are different, and being able in, to know your bone, to know yourself, where if some guys get mad you're shooting at 60, that doesn't, you know, who cares? If you're comfortable and you're confident and you know yeah. your bow, that, it all comes down to that, whether it's long-range guns or bows. Yeah. Know your gear, know your limits. Yeah. Uh, practice on yeah. it. I mean, there's no such thing as too much practice, right? Yep. Gosh, I feel like I could keep going on for like three more <laughs> hours, <laughs> but I don't want to take more of your time. I really do appreciate you guys agreeing to, to meet up. I had never met, I'd briefly met Tanner at the expo. I had never met you, Kip, but I feel like I've got to know each other yeah. a lot better through this. I've learned a ton, um, and um, I'd love to sit down and do another one of these. I feel like there's so much more ground to cover. We opened up so many yeah. little, Oof. you know, chapters of books. <laughs> yeah, it's a fun conversation, and I think you could do that. Put bow hunters down. <laughs> And just start telling stories. I know, right? And, you know, we, we, we laugh at how you mentioned earlier why you started doing podcasts is because of these conversations you have on hunting trips with guys. And you look back and think, why did I not? We've had some of the funniest conversations, and I, I wish we'd have just written some of them down. Yeah. Because, man, uh, some of the funniest little inside jokes you have, Yeah. Uh, you need to write them down and take note of them because over time you lose them. You do. Seriously. Yeah. Yeah. So this has been fun. Yeah, thanks again. Um, Thank you. For those of you listening that you want to check out uh, more, look into these guys some more, you can find them on Instagram, both of you, right? Yes, Got sir. 
Kip at yeah, Kip Fowler, then the number eight, just Kip Fowler eight. Okay, are you on Facebook? Nope, at all? I'm just hiding there on Instagram. Do you film any of your hunts? You know what? I don't film hunting. I don't, but we film. We do a lot of filming in the scouting and off season. Um, so I have a uh, quite a few little video clips there um, of stuff that we're hunting. But no, we usually don't film hunts. We could have. The funny thing is, we look back and we could have filmed almost all of them, but. I'm always worried about. Do you feel like it's a. I do that factor that yep. might screw it's it up. It's hard enough as yeah. it is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and I, I just think we're, you know, we usually we hunt really small groups. It's right. me and a guy or two, and you know, I, I just it's one more thing that I think if I'm worried about, I think I'd do really bad if I knew I was on camera too. <laughs> <laughs> I think if stage if I fright. yeah, yeah I think a little bit of pressure would on. kick in, but we've never filmed any of our hunts, no. So those videos you were talking about, do you have them on YouTube? Or nope, I just anything? post them up on Instagram. Really? So if guys go to my account, Kip Fallerate, they'll see a lot of pictures. And, cool stuff. Yeah, and for most, sure. But, but a lot of little video clips of deer and bears and stuff for scouting. That picture you posted not too long ago of those bucks. Yeah. It was an old photo, right? Yeah. And you really had to look for that last that buck. Last you buck. made a little awesome. comment like, yep. do you see them all? You know, what's funny. So I took that picture in 1992. Um, and I had spent all my money I saved in high school on a good camera. And I, it took everything I had to buy this camera. And that picture, I was in a ground blind, and these five bucks came in. And I, it's, it, it was back in the days when you take a picture and you don't know how it turned out. It's not yeah. like now where you take a picture and you can look at it. So I took a picture and you don't know how it turned out. And uh, that was when I, when I went and got it developed. I remember taking it down to Smith's in St. George. and had a photo department. We developed and I ran into my car and was looking through these pictures. And that one... It was just such a fun picture for me to get back. Because now you can take a lot of good pictures. It's so easy. But back then, it was hard. Right. You had to take into account your ISO, your film speed, the camera, the lens. And that was one of those pictures for me that I was. I just thought this That's epitomizes what I've, what I've tried to capture. It was a fun one. Yeah. It's way cool. And then one of the deer actually harvested that year. But there was that one buck in the back. So you initially look at that picture, and you think yeah. there's four. And then there's this one buck in the back sneaking in. Yeah. That, yeah. That's, That's crazy. Yeah. And then Tanner... We can find you. My personal one is Tanner J. Howard on Instagram. Two and N's? Then, yep, correct. And then um, Lone Peak Leather Co. And then my website is LonePeakLeather.com. And you can order right there on, that, on the website. Awesome. Yeah, we'll leave uh, links to your guys' social media and to the Lone Peak Leather Co. website. Um, definitely get on there, guys. We, we talked about it at the beginning and, and didn't hit it. A whole lot in the middle there, but these these stockasins I think are something else and totally a game changer and mm-hmm. um, just knowing Kip and his uh, abilities and whether you call it luck or whatever, I think it's a, a lifetime of learning and um, application. Um, if and if he's saying that these are a game changer for him, it's, yeah. It's the worth one thing I will note. say too is that there's no skin in the game for me right now. Tanner and I have talked about it actually and. Um, but I'm such a believer that the fact that I'm talking about Stockasins, I it has I have no money to pay him. Yeah, trust Tanner me. has <laughs> no money to pay. But it's it's just the fact that I love that it's a local made product by a local good guy, and it's a product that is a no. I think everybody that bow hunts, it, with the exception of hunting out of a tree stand, but everybody that's on the ground bow hunting, everybody should have a pair of these. There's no doubt in my mind that. If people, uh, you know, take the time to buy them and look into them, it, it's money well spent. I can't believe it's taken this long for me to stumble, <laughs> stumble across them. So, yeah. you know, and actually, now that you think about it, I'll, we'll talk after and I'll uh, give you a discount code for, the, for your listeners. Awesome. Or if they want to order. That'd be huge. Yeah. Well, there you go. That's huge coming from a college kid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, awesome. Thank you guys again. Um, I need to get fitted for a pair of these sometimes. So. Yeah, you do. It's actually, for those that are, are curious, um, 
the on my website it explains how to measure your feet. It's really simple. You just yeah, match watch your, the video. Match the mm-hmm. length up with your with the sizing chart on there and order the size. You got a bunch of different color options and whatnot. So make yeah. them very personal for you. I wish I could say I invented stockasins, but they're just leather moccasins that mm-hmm. I've. It's more of a revival than an invention, right. really. But um, I have I have a couple features built into them that are very special, and I actually have spent a lot of time perfecting in order to make them really protect your feet against cactuses and um, making them, you know, very quiet and whatnot. So, yeah, definitely go check these things out. They're not uh, they're not something you want to be without by any means. They're high quality stuff. They look great. And they don't weigh 100% anything. handmade. Yeah. And they don't weigh anything. I'm sitting here in the shop. They're 100% yeah. handmade. <laughs> I, I can see all the patterns and everything laying around. So, Okay. Well, Ian, sorry we didn't uh, get to ask you very much. Do you have any questions for these guys? Oh, man, like you said, I think we opened up so many different things. That, round uh, two, I guess. We're I, seriously, gonna, if yeah, you guys are down in the future, two. this was a fire hose I have of knowledge. Been sitting here taking notes so next right time on. we'll get to my notepad <laughs> right on. awesome all right well thanks guys thank you thank you all right guys thanks for listening uh to the podcast we did with tanner howard and kip fowler go check those guys out on social media Make sure you go on over to LonePeakLeather.com and order yourself a pair of stockasins. Use the discount code SAWNOUTDOORS, all one word, lowercase, S-A-H-N-O-U-T-D-O-O-R-S. At checkout, you'll save 10% off your order, and this offer is only good for two weeks. So it'll end on June 19th. So guys, go do us a favor. Go do yourselves a favor. Get you a pair of these stockasins and stock in on your next big buck.